Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 80 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dame. The other voice you will hear, as always, is Matt Feuerstein. Matt, we're back with a big one. This is one of those ones. It's always weird. Like we're, we're getting to fewer and fewer of them I have left on my list. But those episodes when you first said, hey, how about we do this podcast? I thought, well, it'll be crazy if we make it to this show. Like this is one of those big shows where I was like, wow. And literally years ago thinking about like doing this show. And now here we are. You know, well, uh, it's the big show. It's the uh, big bad show tonight. <laughs> um, that we're recording. Um, yeah, like, so in 2006, they have the Milestone series, but this is just a milestone on its own for many reasons that we're going to get into tonight. I feel like, you know, I feel like this might be, uh, one of our biggest, uh, hopefully not longest, but definitely one of our biggest, uh, podcasts that we've done yet. Yeah, no, no, it's definitely going to be our longest, but we're going to go over six hours. No. <laughs> Lots of no, no, we'll be fine. I'm sure, so, uh, I'm sure someone would like so, it. <laughs> One well, crazy person out lot. there. I'm, you know, sometimes with podcasts, depending on what podcast it is, sometimes I'm one of those sick people, but not, it has to be the right podcast. And, but, it, you know, for everyone, there's a different right podcast. And, uh, Matt, we've been on a few podcasts this, and since the last time we were on, which was only a week ago, but we actually, we've gone podcast nuts in the last week as we did through the years last weekend. We're doing another one this weekend right now. And, um, by that, another one, I mean the one we're doing right now. Don't expect two. Um, and then we also each guested on someone else's podcast. So I understand that you, uh, guested on us, our friend Stephen Graham, who's been a guest on this show multiple times, his new podcast, Maybe Not Tauway. That's right. Did that uh, go I, well? I, I mean, we'll find out. You got to ask Stephen. I think no, but I had a great time, <laughs> and I was very honored to be on. I, I don't know when that's coming out. I, I um, but it will be out, and it's. I'm just one part of a a bigger podcast where Stephen talks about the uh, the greatest wrestler ever project that will be uh, happening over the next few years, and uh, I uh, contributed my uh, my little. Uh, I guess, um, ROH, uh, early ROH expertise to the conversation is what I can say. And, uh, I was on the, uh, voices of wrestling podcast in their Patreon section. They do a thing every year where they invite people on to talk about different categories in the wrestling observer newsletter hall of fame. They run down all the candidates, you know, friends of the show have been on in previous years. And this year, you know, Alan's been on Joe Gagne's been on inexplicably. Um, and, even more inexplicably, I was asked to uh, cover the North American, uh, the American and Canada candidates this year with uh, Joe and Rich. And so that's a paid podcast. That's $5 on their Patreon. But so obviously, you know, it's a very niche topic. It's us running down every candidate in the U.S. for three hours. And but, you know, if that sounds like a good time to you, we had a good time. And when you say running, when you say, when you say running them down, you mean like insulting them each for three hours, each one eh, gets three hours was, of insults. There was quite a few that there was quite a few actually that got insulted <laughs> in some form. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so that, that was that. And I believe I don't, I always don't like to plug things till after we do them just because you never know when things might fall through. But if everything goes according to plan, Matt and I will have another podcast we'll be appearing on together in, in the near future. And I assume just to, if you want to hear about it before our next episode drops, you know, just follow us on Twitter at Trevor Dame and at Mayor MGF. And I'm sure if it comes out before our next episode, we will be plugging it on our Twitter feeds. So yeah, this is a, 
a bounty. If you like listening to Matt and I talk about pro wrestling, there is a more of it in a month span than probably there has ever been before. And if you want to find out where to listen to our regular feeds, of course, you found one of our three feeds. But as usual, we have our pro wrestling only feed, which is us with a bunch of other great podcasts. We have just our regular feed, which is through the years, THROH on all your favorite podcast apps. And then we have our YouTube feed, which we get some, we actually, some people listen on YouTube. And I, I, someone I noticed the other day, Matt, um, they posted a, a review on our newest episode and they said something to the effect of, I've barely watched any Ring of Honor in my life, but this is just a nice, good, chill podcast to listen to. And I thought, aw, that, that is a very nice comment. Imagine uh, listening to us, two neurotic maniacs, and thinking that we are <laughs> chill and soothing. You know, I really appreciate that. It's one of the nicest compliments I've ever gotten. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, – I mean, look – we know something about feeling alone. So I guess in that sense, what would be a better way to not feel alone by two experts on the subject, you know, in your ears, <laughs> indeed, filling you in on everything, but indeed that brings us to the show we are covering today. So Matt, obviously the show we are covering Joe versus Kobashi, the, the biggest selling DVD in ring of honor history, one of the most important shows in their history. And I have a, I have no notes other for the show other than Joe versus Kobashi. Luckily, because those notes are, plentiful but because there are so many notes i've kind of divided them into three different sections so it's not just one big dump so i've got a bunch of the the notes basically about what led up to kobashi getting booked for the show that we'll read right now off the top we'll review most of the show then i have a couple notes before the match and then i have some notes about how the match was received so we'll just get to what i call the pre-show kobashi news section first off just uh how how did this happen? How did Kenta Kobashi come to Ring of Honor? And for that, we actually have uh, some very uh, – it's, it's somewhat vague but yet somewhat very specific from uh, – Gabe Sapolsky did uh, the Review Away podcast, the John Pollock and uh, Wei Ting's review podcast many years ago. But they did an episode about Joe versus Kobashi and actually got him on to briefly answer some questions and talk about the the match. And – I got this quote. I was so proud because I was doing so much research for the show, Matt, and I thought I didn't see this quote anywhere. And then, of course, I listened to our friends at an honorable mention who reviewed the show already. And, of course, they got this quote, too. So I thought I had found something that, you know, I thought, oh, even Bix's column does not have this quote. I thought, oh, aren't I fancy? And then, no. So, but it is still an important thing to uh, get the background on this. So this is Gabe Sapolsky from the Review Away podcast. I had read online that Kenta Kabashi was going to Harley Race's school to do a camp. Noah would send guys over once a year to do a tryout camp at Race's school. So I had just figured if he's coming over here, what's the harm in calling Harley Race and seeing if we can get a match with him? Obviously, it was going to be a huge match for us, and I came up in the business as a Kabashi fan. When you look at, back at the stuff that heavily influenced Ring of Honor, the All Japan stuff with Kenta Kabashi is right at the top of the list. He had never been on the East Coast, so it seemed obvious that it would do great business to bring him over here. I contacted Mr. Race about it, and at first he was actually surprised that anybody wanted to book Kobashi outside of his thing in the St. Louis area. It didn't seem like the deal was going to happen right then, but then I think he saw an opportunity to make some money off of it, because the whole thing wasn't cheap, I will say that. He contacted us back about putting it together, and then as soon as he saw that opportunity, it came together. The deal actually fell apart, and I'm not going to get into details, but actually did fall apart right when we announced it. That's a story I'll say from my memoirs or whatever sometime. 
The match came very close to not happening, and then it came close to to happening, and then it came extremely close to not happening. Once we had them booked, the obvious match was against Samoa Joe. That didn't take any booking genius or anything like that. That was just clearly the obvious match to do with him, and the best possible match if you're going to have someone like Kobashi come in. So that's a pretty crazy thing that the way Gage tells it, it actually came close to falling through after they announced it. And I know on an honorable... The honorable mention podcast, uh, Shane Hagedorn, who was in the company at the time, he has vague memories of one of the things that maybe caused the brief falling out is possibly that I believe Ring of Honor announced the match before Noah did, and maybe Noah wasn't happy about that. But that that would have been pretty crazy if they had announced a Kobashi double shot, and then they had to tell everyone, like, this is canceled. That would have been pretty wild. I I wonder who would have gotten the heat there. I wonder if it would have been... ROH from the ROH fans or Noah? I bet I bet a lot of people would have blamed would have been mad at Noah. I, I feel like ROH would have gotten some sympathy for that one. And how that would have affected the Noah ROH relationship, because obviously this is the start of what will be a pretty long and really important and valuable relationship. relationship. Yeah, yeah. So the observers' coverage on Kobashi coming started with a. Uh, this little mention where Dave wrote, Kenta Kobashi's confirmed for his first U.S. dates later this year. While there may be more added, he's confirmed for the September 24th show for Harley Race's WLW, October 1st for Ring of Honor New York, and there are attempts to get him booked on October 7th and October 8th for FIP in Florida. Did not now, happen. <laughs> I, yes. I see no other mention of that anywhere to the point where I'm wondering if Dave, like, that seems nuts to me that they even considered that. So she will get to later how much Kobashi cost. I guess you could say of like maybe – I mean at this time we, I've been noticing on the last two Ring of Honor shows we watched, they're upping you know the FIP clips and mentions more. So maybe they could have seen this as like a loss leader like, yeah, we'll probably lose some money on if we use Kobashi and FIP. But maybe this will get people to buy FIP DVDs and get hooked on – get hooked on the FIP, Matt. But – uh I can't imagine, like, a big part of this was not just the quality of the match when we talk about Joe versus Kobashi, but, like, the ambience and just everything like that. And I can't imagine how weird it would have been to see, like, Kenta Kobashi versus Roderick Strong in front of 200 people that were mostly probably, like, casual fans and children. Yeah, like, I mean, it's it's that, not like it's not like uh, the Kenta Kobashi versus Wade Chisholm match from WLW was, like, a hot ticket. You know what I mean? And that was yeah. available on the internet. I remember seeing it, and it really felt like not – that big of a deal, even though it was, was that Kobashi's first match ever in the U S or was like, had he been I, there years earlier? I think so. I think there's some article I got later that makes it sound, I mean, that, that quote from Gabe, I think makes it sound like, Oh, he had never been to the East coast before. Right. I think in general, he just hadn't been to America yet. I'm not hundred percent sure. I didn't yeah. do my due diligence on that, but I, I assumed it was, I mean, it was a big deal. If, if he had ever worked in America before, it was not in a major way anytime recently because this right. was a big deal just to get him at all. Right. It would have had um, to have been pretty early in his career because, like, I don't – like, you know, like, New Japan had their dojo in Los Angeles and I, and I, and I assume they had some – they had, you know, they had connections to WCW and stuff. I don't know that all Japan really had any connections to the U.S., you know, by the time Kobashi was around. Yeah. Uh, next, we have an observer note from the, Koba- the show they made the announcement at. They actually made the announcement at Sign of Dishonor, you know, the uh, the first big show after Punk turned heel. And I remember reading the live reports at that time. People were saying that, like, oh, the reaction from the, the Long Island crowd was not as loud as you'd expect for a legend of Kobashi's magnitude. But obviously, whatever the fans in that building reacted to, I mean, the fans on this night were 
more than pumped to see Kabashi. But right. Dave wrote on the night they actually announced that he was coming there. He wrote, Dave wrote, right now Kabashi is only booked for October 1st, but they are working on a second date for him. It's almost a lock he'll work with Samojo because that's the match everyone wants. So again, this, this, this uh, whole match seemed like it was coming together piece by piece. Like, I mean, this whole booking because, you know, at first, it seems like they own from the, at least days reporting. They really only had him guaranteed for the New York show. Which, it's, always, it's always hard to get that second date. You know, you really got to put your best foot forward. <laughs> oh, you're telling me, buddy. But uh, <laughs> another thing from Dave did then later wrote in another issue. Kenta Kobashi is now confirmed for both October 1st in Manhattan and October 2nd in Philadelphia for political reasons, which means that they probably don't want Joe to do a job and know Kobashi can't. The idea of Kobashi versus Joe in a singles match at this point is looking unlikely. They may do Kobashi versus Joe in a tag team one night, and Kobashi versus Loki, both Noah wrestlers, and Loki would have to put Kobashi over as the singles match. The New Yorker Hotel building only holds around 600 people, so in a sense, it's a waste to see Kobashi there, but that or use Kobashi there, but that was the only dates they could get him. And the feeling is New York will probably sell out weeks in advance, and Philadelphia holds 2,000 for the overflow. But Philadelphia is far harder to draw in than New York because it's been burned out with so much wrestling over the years and has so many different promotions running. And of course, when we get to the next show, which is will be Kobashi in Philly, that will prove to be very true because it, it is actually kind of surprising in the grand scheme of things how not big a crowd Kobashi. I mean, it's, it's a decent crowd, but when you expect Kobashi... Not decent. I wonder how big New York would have been. Because we'll get to it in a minute, Matt. But um, the notes in New York was like the feeling was they could have packed way, probably sold hundreds of more tickets. That at least there were people in Ring of Honor thinking that in yeah. New York if they had run somewhere bigger than the New Yorker. Yeah, to me though, like the idea that the New York venue wasn't big enough to make it worthwhile for Kobashi. Like, I mean, I mean, I think it. I, I assume they really didn't think twice about it, really. But like, if you watch this, it's like the atmosphere more than makes up for whatever they couldn't have sold in tickets. Um, you know, I mean, ROH was all about selling those DVDs. So having that show in that venue with that atmosphere would have been worth it, even if it had, honestly, even if it had half the crowd that it had. And I don't know if you remember this. I think when I was doing my research, I think David Dixon's band, who was also there at the show, and for those listening, like Matt was there at that show, so I'm sure we'll get live memories from you, Matt. But like, uh, I think Bix, I read him somewhere saying that like, um, that the tickets, like, they didn't even raise the prices for this show. Like, it was just, I think he said something like he paid, like, 30 bucks or something for, like, a good row ticket. Like, it was, he he was kind of shocked at how cheap it was to get into Joe versus Kobashi. Yeah, I paid. Do you remember anything about that? I mean, I, I got, I was in a general admission ticket. I can honestly, you know, while you're talking, I'm going to look up to see if I have, like, a receipt email from wow. ROH help from the from this order to see if like it's I mean I I can't guarantee it but I don't yeah. remember I also don't remember it being much higher than yeah the twenty five or thirty or bucks that yeah. are typically what I spent on uh, on ROH general admission tickets back then yeah I just thought that was really interesting that they didn't even try because I think nowadays if an indie promotion booked a guy that big. And it was, they thought would be that huge kind of an event. They would probably raise the prices for that show, especially if they were, if in like the case of the New Yorker, they were limited by how many tickets they were going to sell. And they thought, Oh, there's going to be such high demand that, you know, we're gonna, probably going to be able to sell at a, at a raised price to the people that are lucky enough to get a ticket. I mean, look how much PWG sells for like a standard PWG show. They sell very high ticket prices nowadays, 
But yeah, I thought that was shocking. And then going to uh, another quote from The Observer, Dave wrote, the two Kenta Kobashi matches were officially announced on October 1st in Manhattan. It'll be Kobashi versus Samoa Joe in a singles match. That was the natural match that everyone wanted to see, but I was a little surprised it was booked because Kobashi isn't going to be losing and Joe is the face of the company and should only job for angle reasons. The building is way too small and should sell out, possibly in advance, but it's largely the idea that if they have a great match, it'll be a collector's DVD. Um, I think I might have mentioned this before, but I always thought that Dave's, and I think when we read Dave's quotes, like after he watches the match, you'll see that without him admitting he was wrong, he kind of basically seems to admit he's wrong, where Dave really felt like there's no way you could do this match and have Joe lose. Like some, And I think, you know, when I, I think that it, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of Ring of Honor's audience at this time to think that like Ring of Honor fans would look down on Joe for losing to Kenta Kobashi. Like they were not that kayfabe. The same way like they would often write at this time in the newsletters, like whenever a big ring of honor name, like lost a dark match or a velocity match in, in WWE at this point, you'd be like, Oh, that's not looking good for them. And I think uh, and the torch would do that too. And I think people like over, they over, stated how much that would affect ring of honor fans like i think it was a wrestler people would really like they would realize oh that's something you gotta do you know when you're trying to get ahead is do these trout matches and the idea that they would go well like oh samoa joe lost to kenta kabashi well joe's really lost steam in my eyes like no ring of honor fan was gonna think that absolutely not like it was a, it was a foregone conclusion and yeah nobody cared at all and by the way um so a date July 14th, 2005, order number 30208, um, product information, Ring of Honor, club seating, general admission ticket, 10105, New York, quantity, one, unit price, $25. Wow. Now, could you just keep reading and get to your credit card number? <laughs> yes. And I also ordered um, tickets for the uh, the homecoming show on that same order, so, uh, which was... $15 for general admission. So I guess it was somewhat more expensive than that. Huh. But um the total shipping costs were was 6.95. So really I paid yes, under $30 for that one ticket to see this event that we are about oh. to review. <laughs> yeah, that's that's wild. That's 25 bucks to see Kobashi. Yep. Um and then next up, we have a PW Insider had a little note on it. Ring of Honor announced yesterday that when Pro Wrestling Noah's Kenta Kobashi debuts on October 1st in New York City, he'll be facing Samoa Joe. October 2nd, he, it will be Kobashi and Homicide versus Samoa Joe and Low Key. Ring of Honor received Noah's blessing on the bouts this week, but they were always, they were always what the hopeful plan was. The tag match likely would have happened on October 1st, but Key is booked for the 1PW event in Great Britain. So, Matt, you know, if it wasn't for Key, you might have been not getting to see Joe versus Kobashi live in New York, which is – it's funny because I always thought it was weird at the time that, like, the bigger match was booked in the smaller venue. But in a way, I thought, oh, they're just doing what they did with uh, Liger and Danielson because when Liger came for the double shot, I believe that showed – that double shot too. It was the big singles match the first night. It was Liger-Danielson and then the dream tag match the next night. But I always thought that was kind of weird that you don't save it for the second night, but this would explain that. Also, like, um, I mean, I think you would agree. This venue, like, I mean, I, I don't know if you've watched any of the homecoming yet. I mean, nothing against that, you know, the, that crowd, but, like, the atmosphere just can't compare. Like, 
there's just it's it's impossible for me to imagine a circumstance where Joe versus Kobashi did not happen at the New Yorker Hotel in the Grand Ballroom. It's impossible to even imagine that. Like the I mean just it was just the atmosphere was just so perfect. I mean, I think you could at least agree with that part. Yes. Matt, do you do you do you mean by the homecoming unforgettable? Did you forget the name of unforgettable? No, I show? no, I did not go to unforgettable actually because I had to work, but I it was lit- I ordered the ticket the same time I ordered the ticket for the July Philadelphia show, the homecoming. Oh, I see. Did I just did I next- Yeah, yeah, so you're talking about from before, right? When I said from the homecoming? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. No, yeah. that no, that was correct. I ordered the ticket for the the homecoming and Joe vs. Kobashi at the same time despite them being okay. uh, yeah. almost two almost uh, over 2 months apart. Yes. And that brings us to Joe versus Kobashi, which took place October 1st, 2005 at the New Yorker Hotel in New York City in front of a reported crowd of 750 fans. Apparently, that was like as much as they could stuff into that building. I've also heard um, 800 at different points. I, I know that Dave mentioned 800 at one point in The Observer, too. I guess it feels, you know, like, like with all these, the numbers are seem to be imprecise at best. Yeah. Uh, the Torch wrote about the attendance. Ring of Honor will be moving to a larger venue for future live events in New York City. Sapolsky tells PW Torch that the new venue is huge. Quote, it holds a lot more people. In fact, it is a huge, and w- it, it is a huge, this quote says, and we can fit however many we need in there. I it think was, a lot it of was, people it was, un- a, it was a huge, and it was a bad. <laughs> I think a lot of people were uncomfortable going to the New Yorker and that in this building we will draw more people. We would have definitely had another three to 400 people if we were in this new building last Saturday with Kobashi. So that's what I was kind of alluding to before where Gabe thinks he actually would have sold basically like – 50% more tickets if they had a bigger building for this show. But also, Matt, I mean, I was never at, obviously, any Ring of Honor show. Do you agree with uh, a lot of people were uncomfortable going to the New Yorker? Is he do you, is he just alluding to the how cramped it seemed to be? Or, I mean... Yeah, I, I honestly have no idea what he means. I guess that's the only thing I could think of, because it was a very convenient venue to get to. It's literally next to the Hammerstein Ballroom. Like, it's just like, like it's the same block. It's like one door down. So it's it's not inconvenient. Um, I thought it was an amazing place to watch wrestling. I mean, like, you've seen these shows. Like, it's the atmosphere yeah. is unparalleled. I went to three of the four shows at the New Yorker Hotel that they had, and the atmosphere was amazing for all three of I mean, this one especially, but all three of them. It, I felt like I really enjoyed watching the shows there. I felt comfortable. Um, I guess it, it was pretty tightly packed in, so I can imagine it being uncomfortable for some people. Um, but... Other than that, I thought it was, I mean, a much better venue. I mean, we'll get to Basketball City when we review Steel Cage Warfare, but <laughs> um, oh my God, was it a better venue than that? Yeah, and I mean, I could see from a, a business standpoint that, yeah, like, they, if you have a big show like this, you're, you're kind of losing out on tickets you could have sold. And, it, you know, even watching as a fan at home, it, you know, every show in The New Yorker has looked very cramped and cooling to the point where, like, once out of the ring, you would always see the, and we'll see on this show, like wrestlers having to like kind of scooch like between, like the ring is right next yeah. to the barricade on one yeah. side of the ring. This one was definitely, and, and, this one was definitely the most cramped of all of the ones at that venue for sure. But like you said, the atmosphere in the, in this building was always fantastic. I always love any, you know, building that has like fans in a balcony that overlooks it. I mean, I love all of that. And yeah, although, you know, although I, just, I do want to correct you, be a little bit pedantic. The balcony at the New Yorker Hotel, they did not sell tickets to that. That was like 
wrestlers and like people involved in ROH that were watching from the balcony. Um, but they, you know, they did have people up there. So it did have a, it did, you know, add to the atmosphere, but like I couldn't have gotten a ticket onto that balcony. See, that's a, I wonder if there was a reason why they couldn't sell tickets for the balcony. Cause to me, that would have been a, a nice, you could probably sold a few more tickets for up there. And I think that would have been a fun place to watch it from, but maybe they wanted that just for the wrestlers. But, yeah. um, and then finally, the last note before we finally get to the show, Matt, uh, Dave wrote in the Observer, Kenta and Naomichi Marafuji were at one point going to appear on this week's Ring of Honor shows. However, they had something scheduled for them in midweek in Honolulu, and the feeling was at that point, why fly to New York and then have to play to Japan? I think Dave kind of wrote that weird, but basically, why fly back and forth and stuff? So. What a, what a crazy thing that would have been. This would have also been the Ring of Honor debuts of Kenta and Marafuji on top of that. Instead, we'll have to wait to final battle, but that would have been something, actually. Yeah, I mean, I will say this. This show did not need them. <laughs> no, exactly. And the, shows, and the show that they debuted on did, so I think it worked yeah. out. Yes. So we open with a video package where we see highlights of Samoa Joe from his entire Ring of Honor career as he responds to a question from Bobby Cruz, which is, how will it feel to face Kenta Kobashi in your house of Ring of Honor? Uh, Joe says Kobashi is a very major influence, and when you see Samoa Joe versus Kenta Kobashi, you'll see history. This is Joe's house, Ring of Honor, the place where he dominates. He's here to make sure that Kobashi doesn't. So very quick little table setting promo now before we get to before we get to the dvd i would like to talk a little bit about my um my venture to uh this event and my and like the uh absolutely the see the set the set the stage a little bit from what i experienced that day um because it's pretty memorable i i i mentioned um my life situation uh when we uh talked about um when we reviewed a glory by honor four which was um Working at the mall in Staten Island um, for a few months after college, working weekends, and um, I worked this day. And you know, when I went out to the show in Long Island, it was um, it was a hike. It was a very long trip, so I was late to uh, to that Glory by Honor show. This was in Manhattan, much closer, much easier to get to. I did have to uh, drive because I was go- again coming right from work, ran to my car. Like, I think I changed in the bathroom, ran to my car, uh, got, um, like, just, just, just hoofed it to Manhattan. If you know anything about the distance between Staten Island and Manhattan, I didn't speed like crazy or anything, but there was, um, there was no traffic, thankfully. So I got there very quickly and in time for the show. But whenever I did drive, um, to, uh, to, um, the, like, ROH shows in Midtown at the time, for whatever reason, I was almost always able to get like good street parking, which is probably surprising to people who know that area. Um, but this time, because I was just so anxious to get there on time, I had missed the match, you know, Glory by Honor, the last show I went to. I did not want that to happen again. And so I didn't even look for street parking. This is the only time ever that I went to ROH that I was like, screw it. I am overpaying for a lot. And I parked in a lot a few blocks away. I ran, ran, ran to the New Yorker Hotel. Fortunately, I'd been there before, so I knew exactly where to go. And I remember getting there, and Bobby Dempsey, who I did not know at the time, he, he was just a you know guy helping out, he, uh, he tore my ticket, and I, and I went in, and then he was like, wait, I gave you the wrong half of the ticket. And 
I took the other half back and I went in and it was, like I said, I had general admission. So this is one of the shows that I went to by myself. Like back then, I, I didn't really have like a real, like in real life friends that liked wrestling. I would usually be able to find, you know, somebody who had a casual interest to, to drag with me, uh, different friends. Um, sometimes my father. This time I was just like, I just, I bought a ticket. I was going by myself. It's fine. Uh, I'm going to see Kobashi. So I, I had general admission. I got there late enough that I couldn't get real close, but I kind of stood back by where the hard camera stand was. Like there was a guy sort of on a platform um, with the hard camera, and I stood back by there. And, you know, the show started a few minutes after I got there, but just the sense in the crowd was just like, I, I've never experienced anything like it. The closest thing I can really compare it to maybe was some of those CZW shows. That vibe was was different, the ROH versus CZW shows. But this one was just like, it was just different. Like, you know how Gorilla Monsoon used to say, the electricity in the air, you could cut it with a knife. Um, I really felt yeah. that here. Like, it was just like, everyone was just like buzzing. You would have like scattered Kobashi chants before anything even happened. Like, just the sense of anticipation, like... It was just on a different level. I mean, I'll talk more about like what Kobashi meant when we finally get to that match, but there was no way that you could be in that building and not feel like something really different was was happening there. And uh it was just it was just like just an incredible just to like be standing there before anything even started. Uh, I, I think this I'm, I'm interested to know what you think. Do you think this I think of the 80 shows we have covered now I think this is the hottest crowd, not just in terms of the peak hotness with Joe versus Kabashi, but I think in terms of just th- this was, I think uh, this crowd had the most endurance. Like uh, I always remember how hot they were for Joe versus Kobashi, the match, but like, I forgot rewatching the show, how like they were really hot for pretty much from the start to the fish. And I, that made me more impressed with how hot they were for the main event that you guys still had that level of energy that like you didn't kind of tucker yourselves out. Yeah, I mean, I'd say um, if it wasn't for me, this would have been the hottest crowd. I think I take the hotness level <laughs> down a few pegs. But um, the uh, no, I mean, this or Manhattan Mayhem, I'd say, are yeah. both up there. I mean, I think what 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 made this really good is this. You know, sometimes ROH had really long ass shows and matches that were just like too long sometimes and or dragged and like a, this. They were smart. Uh, no match on the undercard went much over like what 15 minutes and a lot of them were less yeah. than that and they just the show it really flowed well on dvd but in the person it really they kept it moving it was just like boom 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 um so i think that was a big part of it but also this building is just freaking like it just it had the hottest crowds it just it just did and yeah. um it was just it was a uh, confluence of lots of really good things happening all on one night Couple other comments I, I just about your comment. I I just felt like of all the shows like that you couldn't find a like kind of person that might have been casually into wrestling to go with you because I feel like this is the show more than any that would have like entertained a casual fan just with the atmosphere in that main event. In fact, I think when I was just breezing through like live reports on the show, I think I found somebody who was like, you know, I, my dad went to the show and he was like, my dad was blown away, you know, by Joe versus yeah. I feel like that's a match that would have translated even if your friend was like, oh, you know, I, I could give or take, take or leave this wrestling. I, I feel like this was the show for that actually. Well, I think because I bought the ticket in July, you know, because I wanted to make sure it didn't sell out. I was like, 
Mm-hmm. I am not going to be like looking around, like finding people and being like trying to convince them to come to the show. Like, I feel yeah. like if I had bought the ticket, like if I had more time to buy the ticket and like I would have done that, but I was just like, fuck it. I'm getting a ticket to this. I don't care if I have to go by myself. I am absolutely but getting a ticket and just going. And the other thing I remember is like I had a job, um, a, a retail job where I was literally on my feet for like, I don't know, nine, 10 hours um, that whole day. And I was only like 22, but like, I remember like, cause then I had to stand for Joe versus Kobashi too for that whole night. And I remember just by the end, my back hurt so much. (laughs) I felt like I was like 80. Like, I don't think I've had back pain like that ever since then. (laughs) Like, like that's how bad, like I was just, cause just from like standing and like looking up and like leaning, just like, it wasn't even like hard labor or anything. I was just like, I was just on my feet for so long. Uh, and then I probably just, the way I was sitting in my car was probably not great either. And just like, I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm fighting through pain to watch this match. And it was so <laughs> worth it. The, it's good pain. The pain is good. It's building character. And I've made it like, that's, that's how I felt. You suffered in a way that no one involved in, uh, and no one else in the show yes. involved suffered. I it suffer- was not, was the, I suffered for their art. (laughs) And that brings us to the opening match. Uh, Claudio Castagnoli defeated Colt Cabana via pinfall in 7 minutes 50 seconds with the Ricola bomb. That's basically like a sit-out pyramid bomb. Uh, Yeah, Matt, this was the opener. Uh, What did you think except for – I mean I want to know what you thought about everything. But most importantly, what did you think about uh, Lenny Leonard constantly calling Claudio – Double CC. He kept calling him CC during this. Like, I don't know if he just wasn't comfortable yet with saying his last name, but he just kept calling him CC during this match. He's a big fan of the band Poison. Um. <laughs> Uh, I think is what is what it is. Um, yeah, I, that, that was that was definitely odd. He clearly like uh, gets over that pretty quickly. I don't think he does that for very long because it's it's double C. But um, mm-hmm. but no, I mean, like you said, like the crowd was just super hot for this. I remember live there were some big botches that kind of took took me out of the match a little bit. But I think what they did to cover those was that you remember they would have some of those sort of like um, real sudden camera cuts to some of the quote-unquote Rottweiler thugs in the crowd, the unnamed Monster Mac and Grim Reefer and stuff like that. Um, They think they use that to cover up some of the botches, so you didn't really see them. But, like, without those, you know, this was a pretty short, I think it was like, what, seven, you said seven or eight minutes, right? Like, um, just, like, all action, like, you know, fun opener um, with two good wrestlers, I definitely did not remember that Claudio won this match. This is only Claudio's second match on a main show in ROH. And um, so that's a big win for him. Like, even though it was obviously part of an angle to uh, to get over the Cabana and Homicide feud. Um, but, you know, like Claudio's doing his fun uh, missile drop kicks. Not missile drop kicks. What am I talking about? Uh, uh, Cabana does a missile drop kick. But, um, no, his European uppercuts. And... Um, I don't know if you noticed this about this show, and it might have been the acoustics in the building, but I can't think of a show ever that had this loud of a thigh slap move like ratio. Like just like so many loud thigh slaps, including during Joe versus Kobashi, the loudest one ever. But the reason I bring it up during this match is at one point Claudio does a European uppercut to Cabana's back while he's sitting on the on the mat. And there's just such a hugely loud thigh slap and I'm just like 
that's not the sound that that move is really supposed to make anyway. That's just like a, <laughs> a weird time to do a thigh slap. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was fun. I, I, I'm not totally sure, like, if I'm in love with the presentation of the cabana, um, the cabana Rottweilers feud. Like, some of the stuff, it just seems over the top, like, oh, there's threats against cabana's life. So, like, he can't be near homicide. But then you have the, like, and they try to act like having Monster Mac in the crowd, like is creating a sense of menace and dread, but you know, the, the crowd was just having a big party. So you did not feel that at all. Um, but, uh, but the match itself was, was pretty fun. Like, you know, these guys are fun, charismatic wrestlers and it was cool to see the upset win. Yeah. I, I would say like this match was decently fun. It, but was kind of short. I, I was almost more like a, it almost felt less like a match and more like a little snack or an appetizer to get you started for the show and a way to, further the cult angle because a snack, yeah the, a snack the, between two wrestlers who are snacks <laughs> because uh the uh the story of this match was yeah all monster mac and guys like that they kept the camera kept cutting to them in the crowd of course as usual even though monster mac was like a part of ring of honor for the first years like can only call them thugs grim reefer all those guys but the idea is that eventually colt gets distracted by them and that's what allows claudio to get the win and yeah, it was just all action, no real story. Uh, obviously, probably better watching on tape than live. If if like you, well, I know what you said is true that they cut out uh, any botch because yeah, you don't really see a big botch. The the thing I really noticed in this match was just how good Claudio was as a bumper for a big man. Like he he's flying for arm drags and monkey flips in this match. Like he like a much smaller guy would. He he was just so well rounded. Like he could he could you know come off as a big guy, but he could also be just do all the athletic stuff of a of a five foot ten you know faster cruiserweight kind of guy too. It was just great. And he still had um, did more of that like almost like lucha ish elements to some of his stuff. Like especially at the beginning of a match, which he really you know doesn't really didn't really do as he got more experienced. Yeah, he does the even does the shake, rattle, and roll neckbreaker, which Prezex says is a tribute to one of his trainers, the Honky Tonk Man. Which you I know, couldn't you know, quite that, you, you could see that. You know, you watch uh, Cesaro, and you're like, you know, I see a lot of Honky Tonk Man in that guy. <laughs> They're such similar wrestlers. <laughs> um, he also, like you were saying, even it was a little distracting with the thigh slaps. He hit some great European uppercuts, which they were so good that at one point later in the match, Colt does one of his own late in the match, and the crowd like boos him. Yes, because they're like, "Hey, these aren't Claudio's boo." And I thought, exactly. "Wow, yeah, yeah." I mean, he really, you know, he really is right. great at that move. For like, I mean, he still is. Yeah, I, I like that both of us are acting like he's dead or something when really he's just in WWE, which just means he's dead to us. But like, because. <laughs> Uh, like we were both like, oh, he used to be like he's still wrestling. He's still great, but he's still he's still great. Then, yeah. And then going to uh, touching what you said earlier, my last note on this was a uh, yeah. Lenny at one point on commentary says Colt is not wrestling homicide this weekend because threats came to the Ring of Honor office that something bad would happen to Colt. So Ring of Honor thought it was better to keep him and homicide apart this weekend, which I thought is crazy because they're both still booked on the same shows. Like. Yeah. If if I really wanted to kill somebody, the idea that we're like not in the same match together but are still backstage together, like I'm not gonna be like, oh shit, we're not in the same ring together. Well, now I can't get to him. Like, if they really wanted <laughs> to get that over, you would have like Colt like brought in some reinforcements or something to watch his back. Yeah, but he is all alone. <laughs> but as usual, I appreciate that Ray Vaughn was trying to justify like 
this is why these two aren't wrestling, even though they're in the middle of a feud, even if that the, the reason why is kind of flimsy. Ring of Honor at this point still at least tried to go to like keep everything tied together in a logical yeah. way. That one seemed a little uh, unnecessary because like it's not like people normally wrestle each other on every show when they're feuding. But yeah. yes, I, I, I yes, I do appreciate that they, they do put in the effort usually. Although, you know, then you have the weird stuff like not naming <laughs> people who everybody knows. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> and next up. We have a three-way dance. Christopher Daniels defeated Asriel and Matt Seidel in 13 minutes flat. And it was actually an elimination one, which was interesting because so often, including with three ways, it was one fall to a finish. And Gabe's been on the record saying, you know, he didn't like eliminations in a lot of matches. But here we are with a three-way for eliminations. Um, Matt Seidel first eliminated Asriel via pinfall in 925 after he hit a moonsault belly-to-belly. And then uh, Christopher Daniels eliminated Matt Seidel via pinfall in 13 minutes after he hit the angel swings. Um, I'll be interested in knowing what you think about this match, Matt, because I might be the high vote on this because I was surprised how much I enjoyed this match. I had no memory of this match. Um, I feel like one of the themes on recent Ring of Honor shows we've watched is that a lot of the undercard matches – are just more reserved than you think. Even some ones that on paper look like they'd be really good. And of course, we've talked about, we've heard anecdotally from guys like Kevin Steen that certain guys on the undercard in this era, if you're working early on the card, were told to kind of keep in mind, like, don't do too much to, like, blow out the crowd for the main event, stuff like that. And this was a match where it was like, whoa, where was this? Because it felt like these three were going out of their way to steal the show. It certainly didn't feel like when you look at everything they did that they were told to hold back at all. Um, this was a match where it was, it, you know, it's complete spot fest and it's so many spots, like they all run together, but it, it's worked as if like someone told these guys, if you don't do a certain number of spots per minute, like ring will explode. It was like the speed of wrestling matches. And, you know, I, I, I it, is, it is not, you know, in the pantheon of ring of honor, three ways, it is not London versus low key versus AJ styles from the first year anniversary show. It is not the first, you know, main event ever from the era of honor begins with key and Danielson and, and Daniels. But in terms of just a fun, crazy spot fest, I thought this was really enjoyable. Like I would say like three and a half stars, maybe even I want to go even a tiny bit further. Sometimes like I'm right on the border and, uh, yeah, just a ton of big spots. I'm sure you'll go through some of them. It was one of those matches where even like like the, the guys were just trying to kill themselves to impress because both Asriel and Matt Seidel take crazy like neck and head bumps just off Christopher Daniels' clotheslines. It was like they were taking any opportunity just to bump insanely. And again, there are flaws in this match. If you compare this to a modern spot fest – the highlights in the, in the modern spot fest, they're, they're bigger, they're more intricate. The layouts are smoother, I think, nowadays in these kinds of matches. Um, at times in this match, it's so fast that you can see guys are just standing there waiting for their turn to get involved because they're kind of ready quicker than the, the other guys are. Uh, nothing in the match is room to breathe. It doesn't build to the biggest spots at the very end. They're just kind of scattered throughout. But what it does is it just entertains everybody, gets the crowd going crazy, a bunch of big spots in the blender, and I also think the last thing I'll say is sometimes we've seen with multi-man matches, there's that flaw where one, it's always one guy standing outside the ring for a long time, always watching the other two wrestle in a singles match. And this match, like all three or four ways, has a little bit of that, but not that much compared to a lot of three ways. I found that they actually did a good job of kind of all keeping all three integrated quite a bit so that they were all kind of in there trading off very quickly and doing three-way spots. So overall – I thought this was a very pleasant surprise. 
Yeah, I, uh, I hate to say it, but you are not the high vote on this match. Um, wow. I've, I love this match live. I've loved this match every time I've watched it since then. It's probably my second favorite match on this show. Um, I, and it was weird because like, I've always like, you know, in the years, I, uh, through the years, I've checked out like different like recaps of the show. Cause there's a lot, there's a lot more recaps of this show that you'll find online than most ROH yeah. shows. Obviously it's the best selling DVD ever, but, um, the ma- this match always gets like two and a half stars, like two and three quarter stars. Like it's a fun match, two and a half stars, and it's isn't like, that crazy? I yeah. was shocked reading the reviews. Like I, I thought, I, I am so glad you like this even more than me because I thought I was going nuts from reading those reviews. Yeah, no yeah. one likes this, but like we do, apparently. Yeah, no, but it's it's a blast. Like I, um, yeah. if this was a little bit longer, I would definitely go in the four star range. I would say, yeah, you know, it's 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 on the short side, but like that, you know, sometimes in some ways works to its advantage. It's like. Boom, boom, boom. Like, this is what you want on an ROH undercard. Like, just guys going all out. I would say this is um, Azriel's best match, at least since leaving Special K. Um, this is Seidel's probably best match that we've seen for him so far in ROH. And this is my favorite Daniels match since his return. Um, in yeah. fact, it, this, it made me think, like, this is really what Daniels needed to be doing instead of these kind of, like, long, slow deals. Like, he needs to be with, like, young spot guys doing, like fast paced like big spots like because he really shined here i will start with my only only real complaint about this match the only thing that like actually bugged me about this match um christopher daniel's entrance too long (laughs) it's just like and like some shows uh the where the dvds are real packed you don't see the whole entrance um Mm -hmm. so like it's not really noticeable but like the last couple you have and like i think on um on the survival of the fittest show, he, he entered twice and it's just like, he, like he, he, <laughs> he slowly walks down the aisle. He goes to all four corners. It's like, it's a lot of fun. If you're seeing him live for the first time, I can tell you from experience, it's not that exciting seeing him live for like the 12th time and seeing it on DVD all this time. It's just like a little bit indulgent. Uh, that's my only complaint though. I will say this. Allison danger is back for the first time. I feel like maybe even since the homecoming, I don't remember seeing her since. I don't remember if she was on the Midwest, uh, the you know, Redemption, but I don't think she was. Um, and um, and uh, again, she just does nothing. Like which again is, I mean, it's a little <laughs> bit sad because she was such a good character. But the match itself, like, yeah, it's it's like a scramble match, and we haven't seen a lot of those lately. So it was really pleasant. Like, you know, they're, the the young guys are going after Daniels, right? Like, and they start with a double headlock spot. That's fun. And the crowd just is reacting to everything. And, you know, they, they do, like, Seidel goes for a swinging DDT, but Daniels puts Seidel on Asriel's shoulders, and Asriel turns it into a powerbomb. And then Daniels monkey flips Seidel into Asriel, who puts him on his shoulders, drops him down, goes to double stomp his head. Daniels cuts that off with a clothesline. That was a little bit awkward on Asriel's part, that timing, but no big deal. Um, one of the most memorable spots of the match was, so Seidel is on the top rope. He knocks both Asriel and Daniels off the top rope. Then he jumps off the top rope, off of Asriel's back and into a tornado DDT on Daniels, which the crowd goes insane for, but not before someone in a very brief hush as Seidel is jumping off Asriel's back. You hear, and I feel so bad, just one guy because this crowd is so loud the whole night. But this one moment where you can just hear one guy yell, You fucking suck, Azriel. And I just like, and I was just like, Oh man, poor guy. Like the one time you could see one guy uh, uh, shitting on a particular wrestler. Very sad. 
<laughs> of uh, all matches, too. Like yeah. like you said, this is probably the best match he's had in yeah. a long time in Ring of Honor. Yeah. Very sad. Um, the, the, this match also has one of those like weird thigh slaps because it has a move, a, ma- a move where Daniels, he does a bulldog on one of the guys and a clothesline on the other guy. And for some reason, you hear the thigh slap. And it's like, which, which, which move, the clothesline or the bulldog would make that a slapping sound? Like, it doesn't make any <laughs> sense. Um, but it was very loud. Go watch it. Um, but the, you know, the crowd still loves it. Um, uh, finally, they, um, they, they, Seidel hits his flipping belly to belly on Azriel, eliminates him, and it's da- down to Daniels and Seidel. And like, this is the beginning of a, a long, you know, kind of, uh, run together because they have a, f- a series of singles matches in 2006, the two of them, and then they become tag team champions. But so this is kind of their first, uh, interaction in ROH. And, you know, they're, like, Daniels turns him upside down with a clothesline, they do a bunch of roll ups. Um, Daniels runs him into the turnbuckle, then hits a Death Valley driver for two. Um, Seidel, uh, spin kicks Daniels, hits an enziguri, a body slam, a standing moonsault, a bunch more roll ups. And then finally in the finish, Daniels backdrops Seidel, who lands on his feet, but Daniels immediately kicks him in the gut and hits the angel's win- wings and gets the sudden win. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, what I, what I almost think was, like Seidel and Azrael watched the Daniels versus Joe versus Styles three way, and they went to Daniels and they were like, "Man, that three way was so good. We want to do something like that." <laughs> and uh, Daniels was like, "Yeah, okay," because <laughs> that's sort of what it felt like they were going for. Obviously, Seidel in two thousand and five and Azrael were not Samoa Joe and AJ Styles in terms of stature or, you know, overall ability, but. Um, but you know, they sure could do a lot of cool moves and Daniels was game for it and the crowd was going insane for it. And yeah, I don't know how anyone could watch that match and think like it was anything less than like a really, really fun, good three-way. Yeah. And Daniels has always been really good as like an air traffic controller in multi-man matches where there yeah. was the era of honor begins or the four-way at crowning a champion where he was kind of like the story of that match in some ways, him and Loki. And then, you know, yeah. Then the TNA three ways and now this, I, I like the booking too. I did like the, the, uh, the, even though it was weird, all of a sudden this one had eliminations. I could see that basically I, I imagine it was, Gabe wanted Seidel to get some kind of win, but he didn't want him to win the whole thing because he's not ready for a main event push. You know, obviously it's a little bad for Azrael because you can kind of see the writing on the wall here being like the first elimination that, you know, the new toy is pitting the old toy that's getting abandoned. And I'm not one person like there. I know there are people out there that are always like, oh. This wrestlers come out with their boo-boo face. You can tell they were going to lose and stuff like that. Whenever people say that, I always look at the video and go, how can you tell that? Like, maybe I'm just bad at reading faces. Maybe I'm crazy, but I felt like this was a time where I saw Asriel come out on this show. He did not look happy. Like, he looked pretty miserable. And well, he, maybe was, that's the- he was working pretty hard. No, I mean, he was working hard, but maybe he was reading the writing on the wall, or maybe I'm just in my own head and I'm overreading into something. But either I, way. Now, here's one of my pet peeves on this show, which there's not many because I like this show. Um, this is the first show in a long time where you had, like, a lot of members of Generation Next on the same show. This is the show where Jack Evans returns. This is the first show since the Midwest where Seidel's been on the show. Aries isn't there, but you have Strong, you have Evans, you have Seidel. And unless you were listening to the commentary, you would have no idea they had anything to do with each other. And yeah. 
you know, in the old days, in the you know, in the in the when Generation X was was really on the ascent ascent uh, in two thousand four, they were together and they did stuff together, and it kind of like I don't know, it felt like a little bit, um, I don't know, maybe lazy that they just didn't decide like they were gonna like act like these people were partners. They all just had they all just had matches by themselves with no interaction with anyone else. Especially when like the next two generation next matches on the show are both matches where you could come up with a reason like why they should have the other partners there to be their backup, you know, and right. no, no one comes out to help them. But, uh, we go backstage to James Gibson who says it's a big weekend for him. It's no secret that it's his last in ring of honor and he was allowed to pick his opponents. Gibson says he knew exactly who he picked because he heard the rumors that this man was coming in at this point, the camera pans over to the side to reveal that Jimmy Yang is standing beside him. Uh, Gibson talks about everywhere they've been together as partners, as opponents. They've been to Nitro, SmackDown, Starcade, WrestleMania. Gibson tells Jimmy that here it's not sports entertainment. It's professional wrestling. The, there will be no tag partners or interference or three counts or dragons or Tajiris, he says. Uh, Man, no none of that sports entertainment like Tajiri. no political people who can dictate the pace of the match or what direction they take it in gibson lets jimmy know that around here he is the man and he plans on ending his run here with a big win uh yang tells gibson that he's jamie he'll always be jamie son to him and tonight they're going to have not they're not going to have an edit button to edit them gibson's time is up it's yang time now uh gibson just smiles at this and pats uh, jimmy's chest I thought Gibson's promo here was good as usual. I thought Yang's performance was, and all his just sagely nodding during Gibson's promo was not so good. And I also think that I've reached my limit on Ring of Honor promos where former WWE guys talk about how we're not going to have any restrictions here because I feel like we've heard a lot of them now. I feel like, I feel like, we're, not, I feel like we're not going to get too many more of them, if, I, if my memory yeah. is correct. So I think you might have had your fill just in time. But, you know, a lot of us were very excited to with the prospect of Jimmy Yang coming in because of how well Gibson did. We were like, you know, like, you know, Gibson came in and was just really showed the world what he could do. And it's like, oh, you know, Jimmy Yang's very talented. Let's let's uh, see if he can uh, repeat Gibson's performance, and I guess uh, we'll uh, we'll decide if he does. <laughs> yeah. Um, next up, we have the Ring of Honor Tag Team Title Match: Sal Renaro and Tony Mamaluke defeated BJ Whitmer and Jimmy Jacobs via pinfall in 13 minutes 47 seconds when they simul- simultaneously pinned Jacobs after what I guess we would call today a double team one winged angel where Jacobs was like sitting on one of each one of their shoulders, each of them as they did it back then, I guess a lot of views would have called this a victory roll driver or a Rubik's cube, but either way it was a title change, a big surprise title change more so because this match was not even booked on the show going. The fans didn't even think this was a match going into the show because in fact it was originally going to be on, on the card. It was Tony Mamaluke, Returning to Ring of Honor, taking on Sal Renaro. But before the match, Tony, Ma- Tony Mamaluke gets on the mic. He says it's good to be back. He draws a welcome back chant from the crowd. Tony says he's had a lot of success in New York City. Right around the corner in ECW, he became a world's tag team champion. So he didn't come here to win a singles match. He came here to win the singles titles again. He went and searched the locker room and found Sal Renaro, a guy who wasn't doing too much, and issued an open challenge to the tag champ. So, Matt... Uh, yeah, this was a big, shocking kind of like the classic, oh, I'm just going to grab a guy from the back and like start having success immediately kind of tag team. The thing you'd probably more expect at a place like WWE, but it happened here in Ring of Honor. Obviously, 
people don't remember the reign and the booking of this finally, but what do you think about just the match on this night? It was probably the weakest match on the show, um, but it was solid. You know, this was a good show um, in terms of in the ring. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I guess you could argue that the opener was less good of a match because they didn't get any time to really do much. Um, but I think that match was so over that it came off better. This match, you know, it's not like the crowd didn't wasn't into it. Like, you know, they 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 appreciated seeing Mama Luke, and you know, they gave Renaro some um, some appreciation, but. You know, felt a little bit directionless. Um, these finish was exciting. I, I think what was interesting was in Mama Luke's promo. He said, "Oh, you know, I was looking around for a partner, and I saw Sal Renaro wasn't doing much tonight. So I said, let's win the tag team titles.' And it's like, is that really the best way to pick a tag team championship partner? To be like, who's the guy with the least going on? Let's let me. Also, he was booked to wrestle you, right? But you know, <laughs> but but as we have established, the DVD continuity and the and the uh, website continuity are different." Right. Like mm-hmm. we'll talk about that after the James Gibson match. Um, but like, you know, because if we're just going by DVDs, Kobashi wasn't even announced until like the week before to wrestle Samoa Joe. Right. So. Um, but um, so I guess in, in DVD canon, that was not true. So Sauronara was just sitting there doing nothing. He was there for no reason. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it's. It's far, the match itself, and it wasn't super interesting. Like, you know, the, the Renaro and Mamaluke, you know, they tried to do some double team stuff that was fine. Um, obviously, you had um, Jacobs and Whitmer with their uh, their more typical double team stuff, the power bomb onto uh, each other, the top, you know, the the Doomsday Rana, like all that stuff. They were they were becoming fairly well oiled as a tag team. Um, but it just it was just so strange and abrupt. Like, I don't think any of the world was clamoring for. Tony Mamaluke and Sal Renaro to show up like out of nowhere and win the tag team titles. Like, was this Sal Renaro's second, what third match on the ROH main roster? I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think. He did a tag match with Jimmy Rave, I think, on yeah. one show. Yeah, he just did Survival of the Fittest, and I think this was it. You know, he did a pre card show. That might be it. So this might be his third, right? He was in main he, card. Pick. He was in ROH in two thousand four, but I think he was only a special K like corner guy. I don't think he actually wrestled as Mellow. Yeah, yeah. as Mellow. And then Mamaluke shows up for the first time in years, um, at least two years. And now all of a sudden they're tag team champions, and it's like uh, the crowd just wasn't ready for that. Whitmer and Jacobs, you know, Whitmer had lost a bunch of singles matches recently. They they hadn't had a tag team title match since uh, Chicago, where they where they beat Gibson and Spanky. You know, that's you know almost two months at this point, and a lot of shows in between. Um, so it just felt so abrupt that like I just it just I don't know it just was. I just didn't feel like a good idea. I guess is what I would say. Like I feel like if the, if they really wanted to go with. Um, um, Renaro and Mamaluke, they should have tried to build them up instead of doing the thing with they, which was basically what they did with um, Whitmer and Jacobs, where they were suddenly a tag team and they won the title. Uh, it's not really the best way to approach things. The crowd still popped big for the for the title change. You know, I mean, it's a title change. That's always a good way to get a big pop. And the match was, you know, pretty good. I wouldn't say, you know, I I, I would say compared to some of the dull undercard matches we reviewed over the past few months like you said where they're sort of holding back i i feel like this had a little bit more energy than those um and you know the the last few spots were good but i didn't i didn't think this really worked altogether it also might be the fact that i know it didn't work like in the long run that made me uh that makes me feel this way and i'm not judging the match itself fairly but that's how i felt 
I actually like this match a lot more than you. I like this match about as much as I like the three-way. I really, I was shocked at how much I liked this match. I felt like this was another match where they were going all out and trying to steal the show. The the, it, the pace wasn't as much quite as the level of the three-way, but it kind of made the big spots down more. I felt like Jimmy Jacobs took like three or four nasty-looking bumps of just like everything. There's like a Sal Renaro like run-up-the-corner Pele kick that just looked like it killed Jimmy. There are bumps probably that were not intentional where he just takes them on his head and neck i mean between this match and the last match there were so many gross head bumps at a point in this match um i swear to god there's a very brief we love head bumps chant from the crowd huh. which was just show you how many were in the previous two <laughs> matches um well well I they're gonna thought, get well they're gonna get plenty more <laughs> on this night in part Oh, yeah. In particular, I really liked uh, – I thought Tony Mama Luke looked great in this match. I thought he was super intense. I thought he worked it with a real chip on his shoulder. I really enjoyed his interactions in particular with BJ because Mama Luke had this real, like, smaller guy, doesn't know he's smaller energy. Like, there's a moment where he breaks up a Whitmer pin attempt by just kicking him hard. And then as Whitmer slowly stands up, he just keeps, keeps kicking him hard in the leg over and over. You can see Whitmer just getting pissed. And I thought, oh, this is kind of like a fun – dynamic these two have and, and i thought sal and mom look were trying real hard and um i thought bj and jacobs you know they were trying to make this a bigger match too like they let uh mama luke kick out of the doomsday rana which is even crazier when you think about like when you watch the match renaro was like two or three feet away lying on the mat so he very easily could have broke up the pin and i said he just lays there and lets mama luke actually kick out of it so i i thought they were trying to make this a big match like even near the end where um BJ's on the top rope and he gets uh he get, he goes to he's trying to he's about to powerbomb Mama Luke off the top but Sal springboard drop kicks him and he falls off the turnbuckle onto the apron and then bumps off the apron onto the like the ringside table I thought that was cool I, I just I I thought this was another match that was kind of similar to the last match in in that there wasn't like you know psychology or story. But they were kind of going all out and just trying to do the best they could. I thought the crowd was pretty into it. Um, I also loved that when the uh, when they came out, um, when Jimmy and BJ came out to uh, sl- their theme song, which is uh, Slither by Velvet Revolver, the crowd on this night was going hus in time to the yells on the song, which I thought was good. Um but yeah, I like the match, and I think maybe maybe either I'm crazy or maybe people don't like it as much because of the booking, because this is not a fondly remembered tag title change. And, and I do think, like, the booking is different. I feel like the booking, it doesn't look good when, like, two, a guy that hasn't been there for a million years and wasn't a particularly high on the guy comes back, and then he picks a guy that's just barely starting out in Ring of Honor, who also doesn't look to be particularly high on the totem pole, and they just randomly win the tag titles on their first night together. I don't think that's a good look, especially when the tag titles have been kind of adrift for a long time, and it just feels like Gabe is... Until Aries and Strong a few months later, a couple months later, it really just this this feels like a move of a, of a booker throwing up his shrugging his shoulders, going like, "I know this tag division isn't working, and I don't know what to do. I'm just going to try some shit." And maybe that I I maybe that affects some people's thoughts because yeah, if you're watching the match now, you know this team did not go on a big long run. Yeah, and even at the um, t- even at the time, you're like, "This is this is kind of weird." Like you know, it, not necessarily that it was yeah. going to be bad, but it was it was weird. 
And especially like you said, I mean, now they had to do it because they were kind of forced to by Dan Moff's sudden disappearance from Ring of Honor. But like they had just done the thrown together odd couple tag team becomes champs. And now they're doing it again to dethrone those champs. Like it's just, you know, too much of the same thing and it's at the wrong time. But anyway, um, after the match, BJ Snacks snatches the tag belts away from the new champs so he and Jimmy can respectfully hand them off to them themselves, which this will be the last time they're faces for a little while. So Ring of Honor, pure title matches up next. One more thing I do want to add, sorry, um, about the one thing I did did like um, was that at the end – and I, you know, I always appreciate this. After the title change, they let the they let they let the shot linger a little bit on the Renaro and um, Mama Luke celebration. A lot of times on these ROH DVDs, they cut away really quickly after stuff. The, even sometimes stuff that feels big, and it kind of lessens the impact. So I always appreciate when they give it a moment to breathe, and they did for this, and I like that. Yeah, me too. I, I, we're always, I think we've talked about this multiple times before. We're always big proponents of. When a title change happens, like the moment after is almost as big as the moment it happens. And yep. even in wrestling today, too often they cut away way too quickly. Like, yep. give budget in a few minutes after a title change. Like, let everyone enjoy it because that really sells it. And I think if you really are happy to see someone win a title, you want to kind of celebrate with them for a few minutes. I mean, maybe people weren't really buzzing for this title change, but it still makes it seem major. It puts over how much it meant to them. So. Yeah, completely agree. Exactly. Um, next, we got the pure title match. Nigel McGuinness successfully defended his title when he defeated Jay Lethal via pinfall in 10:58 after he rammed Lethal's head into his iron. Um, as usual, before the match, uh, the ref Todd Sinclair explains the rules. The crowd boos. Nigel grabs the mic from the ref and he tells the booing crowd to show some respect. He does the same local sports team thing he's been doing on recent shows, where he this time he calls the New York Yankees the New York Dandies. He criticizes New York for not being good at cricket. Cricket. He asks. He also does the same best there is, best there was line that he's been doing on recent shows, and gets again as he's been on every show doing this huge heat from the crowd for doing this, including at this point a "We Want Brett" chant, which maybe was not the best thing to do when you were teasing a, a, a new mysterious big name like Commissioner on the next show, like <laughs> for him to keep, keep doing this Brett thing, but. Um, Unlike the last two matches, this felt more, a little more reserved to me, more like the matches on the recent shows we've been talking about where they were holding a little bit back. Like I felt like these two could have a better match, but I still thought it was good. Um, very unpure. They did like almost nothing on the mat and only one rope break right at the very end of the match. Um, you know, it's not a bad match. It just felt like they left some stuff on the table because, you know, this isn't an important match on the card, even though it's a title match. Um, it also helps, I thought, that this this show has a crazy hot crowd. And even though I would say this is the most reserved the crowd had been on the show thus far, it was still very cheering and booing Nigel in equal measure, particularly after that pre-mic, pre-match mic work, which I thought seemed to raise the crowd's reaction to him up an entire level. Um, I also felt like these two spent more time in this match, a little more time emoting to the crowd than usual. And... I thought it was good from both of them because Lethal in this match seemed to be a little more comfortable in a role that wasn't his usual like pure young underdog. He's a bit more aggressive in a way that I bought in this match. Maybe because he's really starting to grow into like – I think we talked on the last show like his chops are really some of the hardest in the company and he's really throwing them here again. Um 
Nigel, meanwhile, he just seems like that this was the match where I felt like he is totally comfortable in this new gimmick now. Like, he is so good about playing to the crowd. You know, there's times where he does that kind of almost like, I'm so, I'm shocked. Why are you even booing me reaction? There's times where he's just such a little shit. And, and he, watching him in this match, it's funny because I, I've heard on other podcasts that maybe Nigel wasn't always happy that he wasn't getting a pure heel reaction. But it's only because he's so entertaining. Like, there are moments in this match where he gets booed. And then there'll, there'll be moments where he does something that's, like, so entertaining he'll get little isolated like applause and then the crowd will go back to booing him. Like he's so entertaining that at points like the crowd can't help, but be like, okay, you asshole. Like we got to give you your props. Um, he kind of does the same thing he did against Roderick strong on a recent show where he avoids his chops early. Then he blocks them with his arms. And then that get, this, on this night that gets a uh, Nigel is a pussy chant, but eventually of course he gets the shit chopped out of him. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's a real, you know, standard middle of the road, decent match. And then it goes to the end where, you know, Nigel uses a whopping one rope breaker at the very end. And then he won't let go of the ropes. And as the ref is like trying to pull him off and everyone gets distracted, he grabs his, uh, iron from the ringside table, hits lethal with it, gets the pin, another cheap, very abrupt, uh, heel finish as has been the case. And Matt, I guess I would say the last thing is I thought this was also, you know, Nigel always does the headstand kick in the corner. This was maybe the hardest head I've ever seen someone run into headstand headstand kick because Jay just runs full bore into it. he doesn't pull up and I believe that busts his mouth open because it's right after that I know he started bleeding from the mouth. So if you want to see like maybe the hardest I've ever seen anyone ever take that that particular move, uh, this is the match for you. I would say good match, not particularly special. Yeah, I would. I actually, I think I liked the match a, a good bit more than you. I, I didn't think it was a great match either, but like, it was like I, I liked it more than the tag team title match. I thought it was a, it was really a pleasure to watch Nigel just coming into his own here, and you know, just working the crowd and getting that character going. You know, it's interesting because eventually he transitions into doing this like really heavy, stiff clothesline based offense, and he's not there yet. Right. He's still much more, he's still figuring out the character and it's really fun to watch. And like, like you said, the crowd will cheer him at times just because he's so entertaining. And I've never been the type that needs every heel to be like, Oh, dastardly that we must hate you. If you get a pop from the audience, you are failing at your job, especially in ROH. Like it's supposed to, you know, you're trying to have a good time. Right. And like, if you want to enjoy a good villain, like that's part of the fun of a movie too. Right. With like a, with villains, you know what I mean? Like, um, so I don't think anything's anything wrong with that. I feel like to the extent that this match was like they weren't going all out, it felt to me like this was a match where if they had gone another five minutes, it would have been a great match. Because like they just they were building to something that they just it ended abruptly. But like to me it's okay because Nigel was sort of experimenting with the pure title format ever since his title win. Like, you know, he's, he's winning matches without using much, much in the way of rope breaks. He's cheating. He's fooling around with the crowd. There's a little bit of comedy in there. It's not so serious. And it's not like, you know, the earlier pure title matches, everyone used all their rope breaks. You know what I mean? And they were doing moves in the ropes and like, that's cool. But Nigel's doing something different. And I appreciated that. Uh, Lethal didn't really get a lot of offense in really until the end. Um, but Nigel was just kind of doing a one man show and lethal was, you know, such a good, um, sport and like, you know, a good person for him to play off of that. I really enjoyed it. Like, I agree with you, not a great match, but I didn't think it was, I didn't think it was like that, that they were like holding back or being like, you know, this matches it much. I just think it's like, 
they were they didn't get to the part of the match where it was going to get all crazy because they were just having a lot of fun before that. That's sort of how I feel about it. Yeah. Um, I also noticed, I forgot to mention, uh, Bobby Cruz announced, like, late in the match, I don't know if Todd Sinclair screwed this up or Bobby Cruz, but at the very end of the match when Nigel uses the rope break, Bobby Cruz announces that Jay Lethal used the rope break, and then he has to correct it, correct it, and I don't know if Todd Sinclair told him wrong or Bobby Cruz did, although either way, Bobby Cruz should have caught it, and the crowd then chants, you fucked up at Bobby Cruz, so, um... After the match, Nigel gets back on the mic and he tells the crowd how much their support means to him. He says, God bless the queen with a tear in my eye. God bless America. And that actually gets a couple – again, that's another one of those moments where the crowd actually like laughs and applauds him a little bit just because it's so fucking ridiculous. Um, yeah, just – Nigel was so good at this point in his character. I mean he was good as a wrestler in Ring of Honor break from the jump, but he's really into the character now. Uh, next up, we have Roderick Strong defeating Jimmy Rave, escorted to the ring by Jade Chung and Prince Nana, via submission in 1345, when Rave tapped out to the stronghold. Uh, Matt, you know, another uh, Jimmy Rave versus the uh, Generation Next match. Uh, how'd this one go? Well, I think this is one where uh, the crowd really helped a lot. Um, I, I did, by the way, notice that there was a mix of streamers and toilet paper thrown at Rave. So this is the second time that I have personally noticed the toilet paper. I, I don't know if you've noticed it. I noticed it at the um, Night of the Grudges 2, and I noticed it at um, at this show. Uh, have you? Um, did you notice it anywhere else? Matt, I think we've established on this podcast, if there's one thing we've established, is that I think everything is toilet paper because, like, some people are colorblind. I must be TP blind because uh, (laughs) there must have been tension. Now I don't even try. I just go Matt Woman because every show I – for, like, five shows in a row, I thought, Matt, that's the toilet paper for the first time, right? And every time you're like, no, it isn't. So Yeah, you're not TP blind. I don't trust myself anymore. You're streamer blind because streamers are the things you can't see because that's usually – when you think it's toilet paper, that's usually what it's been. Um, yeah, I can't believe that we're throwing so much toilet paper for Kobashi tonight. That was so <laughs> immature of them. Yes. Um, when, uh, when they come out with uh, Jade Chung on the leash, I immediately feel a sense of relief that I knew this was going to be over after the show, and I would not have to have to think about or complain about this anymore. Um, <laughs> but I will say this. The, the hot crowd here really made Rave seem like a really hot heel again. And I don't know if you would agree with me, but he hasn't felt like a really hot heel since the end of the CM Punk feud. Do you agree with that? Yeah, like the AJ Styles feud was something on paper that should have elevated him even more. But it felt like, if anything, it maybe took a little bit of steam from him. Yeah. And yeah. And I don't I know. You know the Ch- the Jay Chung oh, thing on. is pretty famous, but like, I don't think that really helped him much either. In the you know looking back on it, um, I just felt like it was just like it was weird heat that wasn't really doing much for for Rave at that point. You know, he really needs the foil to play off of, and I guess Generation Next are good foils. It is funny that this is the second match in a row that they do the whole uh, the heel is running away from the chops thing because you know Nigel did it with Lethal yeah. and now. Uh, yeah. Rave is doing it with Strong. I mean, obviously, everyone does it with Strong. That's sort of like how a heel works against Roderick Strong in 2005. But, um, you know, they have stuff with um, Nana distracting Roderick, allowing Rave to shove Strong off the apron into the guardrail, which gets Rave to take over after kind of being dominated a little bit early. And at one point, Rave does like 
a curb stomp onto Roderick, but it wasn't very hard, so it wasn't like didn't get that ooh reaction. But he's he seems to be working over Roderick's neck a little bit. And the announcers reminded me, because I would have forgotten, that Rave is not allowed to do the Rave Clash anymore because he lost that match to AJ Styles. So he is about to um, establish a new finisher that I will um, yeah. I will not say what it is yet, except to say that there is one point where when um, when Roderick Strong whips Jimmy Rave into the turnbuckle, Jimmy Rave does a Triple H style flip bump over the top rope to the floor. That's the only thing I'll say about Rave's future uh, finisher. <laughs> but that does happen. Hmm. Yes, that does happen. Um, but yeah, Nana gets some slaps in on Strong while the ref is uh, distracted. The crowd gets in some homophobic chants at Jimmy Rave, as you'd expect in 2005. Um, but yeah, it's, it's basically a, ba- a basic heel-face match, but Roderick you know, does a good job. He shows a lot of fire as a babyface. You know, his chops are great. His dropkick is great. Um, throughout the match, you sort of see Nana in the background yanking Jade Chung around the ringside by the leash. Um, at one point, Strong flips Rave over into a backbreaker, gets a Boston Crab. Rave gets to the ropes pretty quickly. Uh, Strong gets a sunset flip, but Rave grabs the ropes and covers, and they do that thing where the referee sees it and kicks Rave hand, kicks Rave's hands free, which allows Strong to get the pin attempt. Um, off of the sunset flip, but then Rave rolls out and hits the running knee for two, which I thought was a really good spot. Um, then Strong gets a few more near falls with backbreaker, a big running boot, um, and now the crowd's really getting behind Strong. A few more backbreakers, and Rave avoids a half-Nelson backbreaker and hits a really big spear into a Northern Lights bomb for two. And then uh, the finish is weird, because Rave has Nana give him a chair, even though he's in control. Um, and the ref takes it from him, and that allows Strong to hit the double knees into the stronghold and get stronghold and get the win. And it was just like, I feel like this is too dumb for the embassy because they seem to be pretty good at using their uh, um, interference in a way that helps them. And this clearly just costs him the match for no reason. Um, but that notwithstanding, I thought the cr- the crowd was great for this, and the match moved at a pretty good pace, and I enjoyed it. And it was a solid match with just a. Babyface prevailing over a dirty heel. Nothing, nothing to write home about, but I had a good time watching it. This was the uh, second straight show, in fact, where Jimmy Rave wrestled a match where they tried to get a chair in the ring and it backfired for Jimmy Rave. So um, I, this was my least favorite match of the show so far, but I would still say it was better than average. I, I still got enjoyment out of it. I felt like the crowd got up really hot for some parts, but this was also probably I felt like the crowd was – in a lull for some of it, but even this crowd for them, a lull was still hotter than a lot of crowds. But, um, we talked on the last show when he, when Ray faced Austin Aries, that sometimes rave can be a little boring in, in, in his control sections as a heel. And sometimes they're great. Like sometimes like we loved that match he had with Matt Seidel this year that really felt like Ray was, controlling that match and that was a really good match i felt like the aries match which i actually liked i felt like his middle control section was pretty boring and monotonous i felt like this match he was kind of in the middle where he'd start to kind of bore me when he was on offense but then he would do something to kind of break it up but then he'd start it again so it was kind of ebb and flowing but overall it was it was an enjoyable match it, it's followed the standard kind of jimmy rave match formula of face controls early Heel cheats to get control, which in this case was uh, Nana grabbing uh, 
Strong's leg while he was on the apron and then Rave sh- shoving him off into the uh, barricade and then he got to control him for a while and then it leads to the final few minutes. I thought this was also a match where they like clearly overshot the peak because there was the near fall for when Roderick Strong hit the sick kick, the big running kick. Like the crowd was going nuts counting along for that near fall and you could tell they thought that was the finish. And they actually go for like Another minute after that, including some big moves like uh, Jimmy Rave hit the Northern Lights bomb, which he doesn't always pull out. And they never react, even though they were I, I enjoyed the action for the next minute. I was like, the crowd's not popping as big for this stuff, even though they just popped huge for that one near fall. So it's one of those moments where I know a lot of people in future years of Ring of Honor complain like, oh, so many of their matches, they go five minutes longer than they need to. I haven't really noticed this up to this point in Ring of Honor history, but this was one match where I was like, if you had ended right on that kick, that would have been a huge ending. But instead, you know, you want to do one more minute. And I think the crowd kind of was like, well, we're okay with what you gave us. But, oh, and also on commentary, uh, Dave Prezak mentions that Austin Aries is currently sidelined with a back injury from the Jimmy Raves chair shot at Survival of the Fittest. Which is funny because then he wrestled like a 50-minute match in the final survival of the fittest after that chair shot but i get it he was selling the chair shot during that i think in actuality uh i think aries was working um england at this point at this time he had a little tour of england so that's why the real reason he was not on this show but immediately after the match nana attacks attacks strong from behind eventually hitting him with a super fast running uh hip attack in the corner The, the crowd actually like dug that so much they actually got them to chant for nana momentarily uh, Nana at this point gets on the mic and he calls Roddy a piece of crap. Uh, he then orders Jay Chung in the ring and he gets her to choke. A, he orders Jimmy actually, Jimmy Rave, to choke a Roderick Strong with Jade's leash. But the problem is, as Rave does this, it's also choking, choking Jade because Jade's still hooked to the leash. Uh, Nana is screwing the mic. He's just saying, I want Roderick to die. He's saying, I'll kill him. Uh, Jade eventually falls to her knees, but she as she's doing this she's loosening the collar and nana berates her as not as uh jimmy keeps attacking roderick nana and then rave eventually turn their backs to jade so they don't see her actually take off her dog collar and the curtains that she was having to wear or whatever the tarp she was having to wear to cover her body revealing that she's wearing a shiny skin revealing outfit underneath she kicks jimmy rave in the balls she slaps on the face and gives him a low blow roddy at this point takes out both men the crowd chants for jade uh, Roderick gets on the mic and says, if Nana wants war, how about December in Manhattan? Generation next faces the embassy in steel cage warfare. That gets a big pop, even though technically I don't think anyone knows what that match is. I hope, I guess you'll just assume that means war games, which they would be correct. I, um, I, know, I, I didn't, Jay, I didn't assume that for the record. I just assumed it was a match in a steel cage. Yeah. It's just, it's just funny because he just says steel cage warfare, which ends up being the name of the match. But it's funny because at this point, that match had never been done in Ring of Honor history. Um, gets a big pop for it either way. People like a steel cage. And then uh, Jade leaps into Roddy's arms for a hug and raises her and Roddy raises her hand. Uh, I wrote at the end of this, Matt. I said all of this did not redeem the Jade angle, but it did get a good reaction. And it was in some ways a nice moment. Did it make up for everything else? No, but there <laughs> yeah. we go. It was a nice moment. And, and I, you know, but it felt bigger at the time than it does in retrospect because they really barely followed up on it. Like, there's one. I mean, there's one mo- other moment upcoming with the in the Jay Chung and uh, Embassy angle, and then it's that's that's it. <laughs> it's done. So like, 
it's I just feel like they, with all of the heat they they put on that Jay Chung angle, it was really just for like one moment, and to me, it was not worth it. Like that's that's not worth it. To, yeah. to do to do all that just for this, like yeah, it was nice, like it was cool, like I was happy when it happened. And the crowd was very happy when it happened and they did a good job with it with her like, you know, ripping off the, the smock that she was wearing and, you know, and, and attacking and, but like, and I, I think they, they may, they might have planted some seeds on like news wires and stuff with Chung and Roderick Strong, but they didn't put anything about that on DVD. So it did seem kind of, kind of sudden, um, and abrupt when they were just like hugging, like, but, um, yeah, and, and again, like, why wasn't Generation Next helping Roderick? But all that said, yeah. if you're just judging it as a moment, it was a it was a good little angle right here. And I, and I will say it got a very good reaction. I think it could have gotten an even better reaction. I think we talked on one of the most recent shows about how it felt like the Chung angle was losing a bit of steam because – especially because it felt like – it felt kind of a, it felt like a few shows ago they were teasing moments of her getting angry and then stopping. And then it felt like they kind of pulled back on that. And now it feels kind of abrupt where out of nowhere she just finally blows up and stands up for herself. Yeah. But, but yeah, I feel like, you know, they could have gotten more out of this if they had kind of played it up better. But either way, as you said early on in the show, thank God it's over. Yeah. Thank I don't, God I, I, the honestly, last I, honestly, I don't need them to get more out of it. I just wanted, I just wanted it to be yeah. over. <laughs> Uh, next we see clips of Lacey cutting a promo in the ring, but we don't actually get to hear it. And instead we hear a gay voiceover saying that she stormed the ring here during intermission and informed the crowd that she will reveal her newest Lacey's Angels members tomorrow. Gabe says in an exclusive scoop, he's also learned that Ring of Honor will reveal their new commissioner at that show as well. Um, listening to the Honorable Mention podcast, they say that the reason why you actually don't get to hear this promo is because apparently it was really bad. And so I guess this was their way of saving it, where the voiceover allows you to still get the story point across, but you don't actually get to hear a single word she says. Yeah, now, so, I, don't, I don't remember this at all, and I'm wondering if the reason I don't remember it is because they actually did do it during intermission. Like, that's the only thing I could think of, because, you know, during intermission, I mean, did it look like people, like the crowd was just as full as normal? Because during intermission, a lot of people, you know, walk around, go to the merchandise yeah. table, go to the bathroom, like, you know, do all sorts of stuff. Like, I have an intermission story. Um, so, um, two things I did during intermission was I, you know, went to the bathroom to get some poop. water. Hello? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah I, I just said poop. Oh yes. No, I did not poop. <laughs> I, I, I do not think I've ever pooped at an ROH show. So I, I, I guess, you know, if ROH continues, maybe my streak will be broken at some point. But <laughs> Ring of Honor has to stay open now. I have peed. <laughs> I have peed at a lot of ROH shows, including this one. And so I went to the bathroom and got some water. And I, um, I've told this story on podcasts before. Um, so I went to the water fountain, and I was very thirsty, and I drank water for a little while. And I hear behind me a voice that goes, and I don't remember if it, what the exact number was, but I'm pretty sure it was twenty second rule, my man, and. Guess who I see when I look up and turn around? Eric Bischoff. He said, did someone say three minutes? Who would say 20-second rule, my man? With Nigel McGuinness. It was not Nigel McGuinness. It was a man who had just completed a major angle, Prince Nana. He was standing behind me. 
um, waiting to use the water fountain and very annoyed with how long I was taking. And I just like, he was like looking very intensely, definitely in character. And I, I just like, I like, as he was drinking his water, I just kind of stood there dumbfounded. And then like he, he, um, he, he, he finishes and I look at him like, sorry, man. And he just, he just shakes his head at me and walks away. And, and I was thinking like, why is Prince Nana sharing a water fountain with us plebeians? He deserves, exactly. he deserves someone to not only get his bath water for him, but get the finest water that there is, sparkling, uh, whatever water, not, yeah. not, not just going to the water fountain, like some, some fan like me, some, some low, some low life like me. Um, and then the other thing that happened during intermission was I told you that I was standing for a long time. My back was hurting a lot and there was enough room now in the, in like the little, uh, area, the general admission area, because people were, you know, walking around. So I could sit for a little while on the floor. And I remember sitting on the floor and I looked up into the balcony and I saw Xavier in the balcony and he and I made eye contact and it was just like a really weird feeling. (laughs) It was like just Xavier and I locking eyes while I was sitting on that floor. And, uh, yeah, that was that was most of my interaction that 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 day. <laughs> I feel like Xavier was a guy who hung out at multiple Ring of Honor shows during this period, and yet, like, because I think we yeah, had a report it, on one, like, oh, Xavier was backstage, and yet he never gets another shot. It's weird. Well, he is he does appear in a few more shows, but yes, never like a real shot. But he definitely appears. Yeah. He appears on a show in two thousand six and two thousand seven. Um, but yeah, he he did definitely is at a lot of the New York shows, which makes sense. He's he's from there. Isn't that weird though? Like to see a former world champion of the promotion and he's just sitting unacknowledged as a fan, like watching the show, not booked for it. Like, yeah. It's such a weird thing. But the balcony is and, the, uh, the balcony is the VIP section, so he was a VIP. Yeah. But he made, also, but, but he made eye crazy? contact with me, which probably spooked him. He didn't want to come to any more shows after that. He was like, That guy <laughs> that guy is terrifying. He was going. Who's that talking about the twenty second? He wanted to see this this infidel who was uh, drinking so much water. Just Bogart. <laughs> Doesn't that seem crazy? Like I know Ring of Honor was an indie. I know they didn't work on a big budget or pay out big. But like, this is crazy. You think that the one thing a pro wrestling company would always have was some water backstage? Like the idea that like you just had a match, you're thirsty, go to the water fountain. Like they don't have any. Like you couldn't get a water from the bar or like have a bottle backstage. Like that seems nuts to me. I don't know. Yeah, I mean maybe I don't. I don't know. Maybe Nana was just like walking around and doing stuff, and he was like, "Oh, the water fountain's there." Like, yes, there's water backstage, but I want water right now. That could be it too. Uh, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? But the other thing I remember seeing. At intermission, as I was walking out of the, uh, you know, the like, I guess, arena or ballroom or whatever, was Carrie Silkin. And this was like, you know, you know, just after the first half, he was telling somebody, he was like, man, that was, this is a hell of a show. I remember him saying that to somebody. Uh, and, you know, it was a really fun first half, yeah. even though there was nothing super special on it. I mean, the crowd was great, and, you know, there were, you know, maybe not every match, but we saw some matches where the guys were really, I think, trying to steal the show, which, like we said, hasn't been happening on some of the recent shows. Next uh, on the DVD, though, we get a clip of Brian Danielson versus Austin Aries from their last match of Honor, and Gabe's voiceover says that when Brian Danielson returns in two weeks to Ring of Honor, he'll be defending the Ring of Honor title against Aries at a show called Enter the Dragon, so... That'll be coming up in a couple of shows on through the years. 
Although, although, fun, although fun, fact, fun fact about Enter the Dragon, if I recall correctly, it was not named until actually after the show um, happened. I think like they, they, they had people on the message board, basically, like they crowdsourced the name for that one. And it was they came up with a good name. That is a good name for that show. Yeah. It was just before that the working title was just 22nd Rule. They, they <laughs> wanted to make sure there wouldn't be any incidents again. Uh, <laughs> Nick, <laughs> if that was PWG, they would have named a show 22nd Rule. But uh, That's right. Ricky, first match after intermission, Ricky Reyes with Julius Smokes defeated Pele Primo via submission in 47 seconds when he made Pele tap out to a dragon sleeper. This was just a squash. This was uh, actually Pele's first main card match that made DVD. Um, almost nothing to this. It's literally uh, just a squash to for, for uh, Ricky Reyes. I think I think it's uh, built, one... to built to something on the next show, some angle. But I will say this, more entertaining than most of the longer Ricky Reyes matches they've had on the DVDs recently. <laughs> Uh, the one entertaining thing I found from this match was actually on commentary. Gabe, for some reason, joins for this match. And I guess he's trying to, as always, Gabe overtips what's going to happen by trying to push in the opposite way. Because Gabe, I swear to God, as he sits down to talk with Prezak for this 47-second match between a student that the average Ring of Honor fan has never seen before and Ricky Reyes, Gabe says, and I quote, this one should be a good one. It's like, like he's trying to sell like this is going to be like a competitive, interesting back and forth match when it's a 47 second squad. So that way I, I presume we're supposed to be shocked because, you know, Gabe said it's going to be a good one, but no. He means it's, he means it's going to be like a good 40 seconds. Like yeah. It's, it's going to be, a, um, he, meant, he didn't mean a good one. He meant a good 47. <laughs> he was off by 46. Yeah, that's right. Um, James Gibson, next up, that would be his second last match in Ring of Honor. He defeated Jimmy Yang via submission in 15 minutes, 47 seconds, when he made Yang tap out to the rear naked choke. Um, or was it the rear naked choke, or was it the guillotine choke? It was the guillotine. I, I wrote that wrong. Yeah, I knew I knew I wrote that wrong. Anyway. I do it every so show. The, the the Dave Meltzer in the Observer, when he was recapping the live notes of this match, he wrote that the booking idea here was that doing this match gets Yang off to a good start by having a great match the first night out. Um, Matt, do you think that accomplished uh, its goal? Do you think this got Yang off to a big start? Hmm. I mean, it was a good match. Like James Gibson was working really hard. I do think that it like it did leave an impression on some people that Yang was not the person who was making this match great. Like, I don't think Yang in particular really impressed here. Like, he was good. He held his own. Like, it was a good match. But if you remember, like, when Gibson debuted, and unfortunately for Jimmy Yang, that's who he was always going to be compared to. Like, they were the tag team partners. He had his match, first match with Gibson. And, like, it's a really high bar to clear. And Gibson just was, like, a revelation, right, when he came to ROH. Like, people were like, oh my god, this guy's so good. And, you know, Yang does not leave that impression. And, um, you know, again, they, they have a good baby face match. You know, they do some little like lucha arm draggy stuff and some, some neck work and some, you know, Yang does a lot of like spin kicks, like a lot of spin kicks. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you see Gibson and he's, you know, he's motivated and he's super intense like he always is. And Yang seems tired at different points. And like, he doesn't – ROH, like a lot of the best matches saw, and where the guys really impress is when they really bring a certain intensity to what they're doing. And that to me is what Yang was missing here. 
Like, he just did not seem like he was, like, emotionally all in on this. It, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't working super stiff, which is one thing that ROH guys do. He didn't really, like, display a ton of emotion. He seemed tired. And, you know, as good as he is and as good as he was, and, like, you know, he does a very nice moonsault. A lot of air, not a ton of distance, but a very nice moonsault. Good kicks. Like, you know, the, the ending of the match, you know, was pretty exciting. They, they got some good pops down the stretch. Um, you know, Gibson, he took a buckle bomb up by Gibson. Um, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. But he just, when you watch this match, you're not like, oh, man, I got to see more of Jimmy Yang. You say, oh, you know. James Gibson's a great wrestler, and this was a good match. But unfortunately, I don't think Yang, you know, made the uh, the big debut moment that people were probably hoping for. Yeah, uh, I thought this match was disappointing, but I thought it was still enjoyable. Like probably on the border of for me, above average and just solidly good. But you know, the, I think the expectations were a lot higher. Uh, the weird thing I thought about this match was, you know. A lot of wrestling matches, you know, are put together, called in the ring. You might have a few ideas, the finish, a few spots, but you call Lava in the ring. You find moments to tell the guy, you know, what you want to do next. And that's great. That's the one, the classic way to put together a match. There have been 10 bajillion great matches that have been put together. There are a lot of advantages to doing it that way. But I felt like the secret to that is you do that in a way where it doesn't feel like you're making it up on the fly. You do that in a way that feels like natural. To me, this was a match where it felt like you could literally at some you could literally sometimes see them putting the match together because there are sometimes like early on, basically a lot of this match in the first sections of this match are a cool little high spot exchange between Gibson and uh, Yang, and then one of them will get put in a submission for a while. They'll call the next spot. Sometimes you can literally see it. Like early on, there's a moment where G- Yang gets hit Gibson in a headlock, and you can literally see him looking to Gibson's eyes as Gibson is talking to him. And it, it just felt like it, it, it felt it was very obvious that this was a okay, let's do three spots. Okay, let's get in a submission and we'll think about what to do next. Let's do another two spots. Okay, back in the submission. And just kept going like that for a while until they got into those final minutes. And I felt like the seams were showing to, and maybe, you know, I didn't think about it, but you saying that Yang looked tired, maybe that's a symptom of that. Maybe it was Yang needed breaks, you know, even that, that could very well have been it. You know, he wasn't used to this or, but either way, you know, Gibson was the better worker here. You know, they tried to do big stuff at the end where Gibson kicked out of Yang time and Gibson let Yang kick out of the Tiger Driver, although they did in such a weird care angle and the crowd didn't seem to think he kicked out. So maybe maybe the weird angle was maybe Gibson – I'm thinking maybe Yang actually didn't kick out the Tiger Driver and they had to hide that because he was supposed to. I don't know. It was a very weird little spot. I mean, the, the, when they weren't just kind of very much putting it together, when they actually were wrestling each other – I did enjoy it. Just something about the way they were putting it together was distracting to me. Like you said, Gang does throw a ton of kicks, and they're impressive. But yeah, he does go to that a lot. Um, Gibson did a, a to, did a tope to Yang on the side of the ring where there's barely any room, like between the ring and the guardrail. So he just they just fly into the first rail row, which is just a nuts thing. And you can tell that. Um, you know, they're trying really hard there. There's a yeah, yeah, big, but, uh, but, but I do want to, I said, oh, I don't mean to interrupt, but like, do, do you see like, like the, like the big thing where he's trying really hard, that's Gibson doing like something crazy. Like 
you know, and usually you'd expect a guy debuting to like try to pull something like that to make a real impression. I don't really feel like Yang went there, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. But do you also think I was thinking about this? Is this one of those matches where maybe like it seems like a natural match to book because they have a history together and it's one of the last matches Gibson has. So this is one of the only times you can book it. But like I feel like I get what you're saying. and I agree that Yang did not look like this was like a huge major match to them, even though they tried to sell that on commentary. Because at one point they even say like Prezak actually makes a point to even say like, that ring jacket Yang is wearing. The only other time he's ever worn that jacket was when he went when he worked WrestleMania 20, and they were saying like that's how important this match is to him. And like to your point, he did not work this like this was the second most important match of his life or anything. Nor nor was it probably really in the grand scheme of things. But still, he didn't look like that. But what I was going to say is. Even though he didn't look like he was working that hard, I think that gets even more accentuated by the fact that like he's wrestling like one of the top guys in ring of honor in terms of looks like he's given a shit. You know what I mean? Like, and especially it's, it's not just James Gibson, Mr. Gives a shit, trying hard guy, but this is his second last match in the company. Like he comes out and you can tell he is just so happy to be there. He's like smiling ear to ear. He's slapping every fan's hand in the front row. And he does that after the match as well. The crowd is just so happy to see him. They know, you know, that this is his last weekend for the company. And I feel like when you juxtapose that then with Yang, it makes his lack of being on that level even more pronounced. Cause you're like, boy, comparing that to Gibson, like, holy shit, you know, yeah, he, I, he doesn't look close to that enthusiastic. I agree with all that. I also at the same time would say I can't blame them for like any anybody for that because like if you were booking ROH, like who's the best person to debut Jimmy Yang against? It's obviously James Gibson. Like between their history, between the fact that, you know, it's Gibson's farewell. So the match is going to have a lot of attention on it. And the fact is like you want somebody to have a great match. In 2005, ROH, like, Gibson's a pretty good bet for somebody to have a good imp- – leave a good impression with. So, like, there's no one who I would be like, you know what? They should have debuted Yang against this person instead. You know what I mean? So it just – it didn't work out ideally, but it was still a good match, and, like, you can't necessarily blame them for the idea. Yeah, no, on paper, it's a good idea. I just wonder if in practice it kind of backfired, even though, yeah. again, yeah, like, on paper, I don't think there's a better – guy to line him up with but yeah not a bad match but disappointing and certainly not the debut i think you'd hope for or that compare it to gibson's debut where you know he got overcome by emotion and was like legit like crying in the ring after the match like that's not this kind of match but after the match the crowd chants thank you gibson we see some clips of gibson's roh highlights interspersed with live shots of him in the ring post-match uh he and yang embrace the crowd switches to chanting please come back for yang uh gibson gets on the mic and now we get an mvp chant for him gibson says he'll be honored to come back whenever ring of honor will have him he calls spoilers, he, spoilers rest- he never comes back <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and time might be running out um he calls this his last year of the last year of his wrestling life his most fun one and his most pleasurable and he thanks everyone he talks about getting to pick his opponents for this last weekend and he puts over jimmy yang tomorrow for his final match he wants to face someone possibly for the mantle of ring of honor mvp he calls him a personal friend someone he met in the last year and took under his wing someone who gets better and better each week by leaps and bounds roderick strong Gibson says tomorrow he plans on giving the greatest performance a wrestler can possibly give. Gibson then bows to each side of the ring, and he high-fives everyone again on the, in the front row on the way to the back. 
so yeah, nice little promo from uh, Gibson. It is one of those interesting things where they never really told on camera that story of Gibson being like a mentor to Roderick Strong. But, you know, they've worked at FIP. I think there was one show where Roddy randomly came out wearing a James Gibson T-shirt. And obviously they had that one match at the Best of American Super Juniors. But, like, I feel like that's a story that, again, maybe that was something they were playing up more on the website to, like, what you were saying before about how sometimes Ring of Honor website continuity wasn't always Ring of Honor DVD continuity. I'm not sure how much they played it up at the time. Yeah, I, rem- um, I remember the stories a lot back then. So I think, yeah, I think there is something to that, what you just said. Also, on the way, out, way on, on the way okay. out, you see Gibson hug a famous fan Vladimir, and it's always fun to see like him on the front row of ROH. I don't think you usually see him there; like he's it's, it's, he's not one of the ROH faces you always see. But you know, so, so you know, it's I was going to ask you know, if that was show. Vladimir. It definitely was, and I remember seeing him at some yeah. of the ROH shows, but I don't remember seeing him like at all of them. And you know, so you know, it's a big one when Vladimir's there. Poor Vladimir, that documentary WWE commissioned and teased that was going to come out. It's like been months and it still hasn't come out. I want to see it. I'm interested in yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, I just I, – I will definitely watch it when it comes out because that's just you know yeah. how many fans have had a documentary about them. But right. next up, Jack Evans defeated Homicide with Julius Smokes at his corner via pinball in 13 minutes, 35 seconds with a roll-up win. Homicide was distracted by Colt Cabana rapping in the balcony – but um, this was Jack Evans' return to Ring of Honor after a few months away. Uh, okay, this was a I, – I thought this was a good match in terms of it entertain me. Another match on this card doesn't really have a story or an existing issue or even an outgoing issue between the two guys compete against each other. I would say this was good, but when you consider, like, I, I, I think these two could have a better match. Like, this was good in the way that almost all Jack Evans' matches are good in that – Jack Evans does really cool spots and he gets, he takes a beating really well. And you got both of those things here. Like, I think one thing that's undersold with Jack Evans is how good a bumper he was off like standard moves. Like in this match, watch how he flies almost all the way across the ring to like the ring apron, just off taking a tornado DDT from one corner, like just stuff like that. And, you know, Maybe not great flow in this match, but they go back and forth. It's not a complete squash or homicide or anything. Um, Evans does homicides, Tope Conhilo to homicide. It's not as pretty, but still a, a fun spot where he's like doing homicides thing to him. Uh, you get your usual Jack Evans torture porn in the sense of homicide does a single leg Boston crab to, uh, Jack while pulling back on his head to the point where he gets that foot and the head to touch, which is disgusting. Um, Evans does a moonsault at one point, which to an only slightly crouched homicide and basically hits him in the head and shoulders with like his ass coming down from a moonsault, which looked like it could have killed homicide. Uh, it made it feel like he was uh, going e- for some sort of like flipping DDT thing, but he just like landed on the back of homicide's head. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, that's the magic of Jack Evans. Something can like fall apart and it still looks insane. Um, but this is a match that's kind of like the opener of Colt and Claudio, where the real point of this match is just to um, further the Colt uh, homicide story. Because near the end of the match, we see Colt Cabana is revealed to be in the balcony. He has a mic, and he starts ranting. On, and and th- at this moment, Homicide was about to defeat uh, Jack Evans. I believe he had just hit him with the lariat. But Colt's revealed to be in the crowd on the mic. He starts dissing Homicide. He... uh 
you know, he's talking about standing up to him or stuff like that. He's talking trash. He's kind of rhyming and doing raps, but we can't really hear over the sound system. He, I can hear some stuff. He says that Julius Smokes got, he asks Julius Smokes if he got a silver teeth from blowing the Tin Man. And then he talks about the, uh, homicides thugs that are in the crowd that the cameras cut to throughout the match. And he says, we've got 50 cent, Dr. Dre and Richie rich, but then he corrects himself and says, we've got someone I can't make out Eminem and Conan's bitch. At one point he calls homicide Nelson, which I guess is, Ooh, you know, shooting because that was homicide's real name. It still is presumably. And then after like a yeah, minute, he actually, he actually this, changed He actually changed his name officially to warrior. Yeah. So it's not Nelson anymore. <laughs> so, uh, Finally, after like a minute of this, Jack Evans recovers and rolls up, hits a reverse Rana on Homicide and rolls up. So again, good, not particularly special, not much like substance to it. It's just fun stuff. But I do, I, I will say this. I am not, I do not generally have a problem with interference in matches, but I do think when a guy just stands there with his mouth open watching interference for like a full minute, like, that does look kind of stupid. That does feel more WWE-ish, where I realized the whole point of the interference was for Colt to be funny and get in those big lines. But it just was, like, a whole minute of Jack Evans just standing there. Homicide could have just draped an arm over him and pit. He's just standing there looking up at Colt, doing all his comedy routines. Like, that was a little goofy, I thought. Yeah, I think this match is memorable. Like, like it's, I mean, like, I miss Jack Evans. I feel like the shows have gotten duller without him. So, like, I'm happy that he's back, and I don't think this match was dull at all, and they were, you know, they were definitely working the crowd and being characters, and Homicide did some dancing, and got a You Got Served chant, and then Jack Evans did a break dancing, and you got a You Got Served chant, and, you know, like, Jack Evans' Tope Cone Hilo was a really unique-looking one, like, like to the point where, like, it took me a second to realize, like, oh, he's doing Homicide's move, because it looks so different. Like, the, the the way he flipped was just very different. He didn't, like, tuck, like, or, like, roll into a ball. He sort of, like, just, like, flopped over, like, and, like, the last second. Like, with, Jack Evans just does things so uniquely, the way he moves his body. It was cool, but, like, crazy. But, like, just like Homicide, he flow, he flow, he, he flew right into the guardrail. <laughs> so, um, they do have that in common. But... Yeah, in fact, at one point, um, Lenny Leonard said about Jack Evans, good thing he rested up all those nagging injuries because he's going to get a bunch of new ones tonight. And <laughs> he probably did. Um, um, but yeah, like, um, this, this match was like super sloppy. Um, and, uh, so it wasn't actually good, like in a technical sense, but it, it's just fun to watch Jack Evans and Homicide. Like they, they have weird, like negative chemistry, but like it worked. <laughs> um, I, you know, um, I, I wasn't really crazy about the Cabana rap, even at the time. I remember being live, like not being able to understand a lot of what he said, you know, because those, you know, those, uh, sound systems that ROH shows were not great. And I, you know, I, I remember, I definitely heard Conan's bitch when he said that. I, I remember, I definitely made that one out. And I know he, I remember him saying Nelson, I think, but I don't remember what he said around any of those things. Like, so I had to like re-listen now. And, you know, I don't think it's any of it's so funny. Like the, the thing that yeah. I, the thing that I, you know, cause I, you know, we talked about Stephen Graham mentioned, like, there's sort of like a racist element to this. Like homicide is not a rapper. So, like, the idea that I'm doing a rap to him, like, I, I don't under really understand what the relevance is. Like, you know, it's like, this is the music of the streets. Like, was that kind of what the idea is? Like, I, I, I don't know. But, um, I, did, I didn't think the rap was good. 
And so I didn't really love the finish. And I think this feud will get better when they actually start having like brawls and stuff. Um, but uh, this early interaction is not really doing it for me. But I was really happy to see Jack Evans back. And the, the New York crowds always are having a good time when, uh, when Homicide is, uh, is uh, out there wrestling. So that made the match entertaining for me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that brings us to the main event, although there's a lot to talk about. First off, though, what was the main, event? What was the main event of the show, though? I, I'm forgetting. What, who was, who was, what was the main oh, event? Oh, some, some guy from another country in Samoa Joe, I forget. But, uh, guy from Canada in Samoa Dave Joe? <laughs> it was Chris Benoit. Uh, Oof. Dave Prezak says they're going to sign off at this point on the DVD. And by the way, in 2005, Samoa Joe versus Chris Benoit would have been an absolute dream match, just so, just yes. for the record. Yeah. Now it's a nightmare match or a weird dream match. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, as in you actually had a weird feverish dream. Yes. Like, Why did I dream that? Yes. Um, so at this point, Dave Prezak says they're going to sign off, let the fans enjoy an electric live atmosphere for the main event, and they're going to join Gabe, or as they say, Jimmy Bauer at the bar. Um. So I guess the first thing we should talk about before we get into the match is this match. Yeah, this was one of those matches, and we've talked about Ring of Honor. We've covered Ring of Honor matches before that were like this that did not have commentary. And I've talked before, Matt, on this show, and I'll say it again. I don't like the idea of, of saying a match is so good we can't put commentary on it because I feel like, as I've said before, pretty much every of my favorite matches in any in every promotion ever has had commentary, and I was never like, this match it's so good. I wish there wasn't commentary on it. I, I feel like also when you do that, it it kind of then if you do that more than once, which Ring of Honor would do that, you know, a bunch of times, it starts to kind of undercut every other match because it kind of says, well, how good it was this match if you still left commentary on it. I will say, and I know I think you feel differently than I do, but I will say on this match, if there was ever going to be one Ring of Honor match with no commentary. I think this is the match because this is something Gavis pointed out. There was no existing story the fans needed to know, and because the crowd was so ape shit. But I feel like if you did real good audio mixing, you can have the commentary and the crowd reaction. But I will say, this is the one match. If you're not going to commentary, is the match to do it on. Well, first of all, the caveat you just said: if you do real good audio mixing, this was Ring of Honor in 2005. I know. I know. <laughs> um, no, I don't feel differently than you. Like, this is the only match that I can think of where they did this, where I'm like, okay, I think this was probably a fine decision. Like, I, I, I the, the crowd just really tells the story. Like, I, and not only does this match not have a pre existing storyline to get over, I don't think there's so much nuance to the action. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think there's yeah. anything about what's going on in this match that is not readily apparent. So yeah. I um so I feel like it's okay. I mean I think you know with good commentary could it have been good? Like sure. And I know they did re-release this match with commentary. I've never really watched it um with commentary. I've only watched it this way without commentary. Um but I'm pretty sure that even like when I even when I after you know after I saw this live I was probably like, "You know what? I don't think this needs commentary." So I I think I'm you and I are on the same page about this. The funny thing is, this match, for a match that's famous for having no commentary, and it'll be referenced again later, um, 
is technically has had is had has had commentary with three at least three different commentary teams because like you just met like Matt just mentioned, there was a Koch DVD release of the best of Ring of Honor matches that were in that was in like retail stores. And on that show, for for some reason, they decided for that release when they put Joe versus Kabashi on that to get Lenny and Prezak to record commentary for the match then. In addition to that, um, the Fight Network, which is a channel in Canada, you know, their parent company ended up buying Impact Wrestling. Um, they, they used to air Ring of Honor matches, and for some reason, when they aired Joe versus Kobashi, they decided they wanted to have commentary for it. So they got Moro Ronello and a, a guy from Live Audio Wrestling named Dan Lavransky to do commentary for it, which I've never seen that, but I've heard of it. And then... When they, they were filming this, we should note that, uh, Nippon TV and Samurai TV were like at ringside the whole show when they were filming this match for Japanese TV. And you can actually see the Japanese TV feed online and that has Japanese commentary. Oh, and also this match is for free on, uh, the Ring of Honor YouTube. It's part of like an hour long compilation of three big Samoa Joe matches in Ring of Honor. If you just YouTube search Joe versus Kabashi, it'll be one of the first things that comes up. But. Modern Ring of Honor ring uh, commentator Rick Ian Riccoboni and the referee for this match, Todd Sinclair, actually do a watch along for this match as a separate video file. So you could actually say there's like three and a half different commentary feeds for this match. And um, one thing Lenny Leonard has mentioned a lot in various interviews is that he was really disappointed that he did not get to do commentary for this match at the time. In fact, I have a quote from him from an interview he did with a guy named Oliver Newman from years ago. And he asked uh, Lenny, quote, thoughts on the biggest match you commentated on at this point? And Lenny replied, I thought being able to call the play-by-play on the re-release of Joe versus Kobashi was a big deal for me personally. I was just disappointed we didn't get to call it because it was such a big match for Ring of Honor at the time. And I thought Dave and I had earned the right to be a part of that match. So it hurt when we were told the action was going to speak for itself. To me, it implied that we would have taken the match down a notch by commentating it. When we got to do it with commentary for the Koch DVD release, I was happy, but not as happy as I would have been originally. And like that's not the only time I've ever heard Lenny say it like that. I think that still kind of sticks in his craw to this day. I wonder if he, I, I wonder if he blames oh, Dave Meltzer because Meltzer said in the Observer like you shouldn't release <laughs> this with commentary. Yeah, fuck you, Dave. But um, that brings us. Although I will have one more note before I throw it to you for the match. But that brings us to the main event. Kenta Kobashi defeated Samoa Joe, who was escorted to the ring by his young boy Jay Lethal via pinfall in 23 minutes 42 seconds after he hit the burning lariat. So a couple more notes before we get to the match that I think work best here. The first we should mention is, this is a story Samoa Joe has told multiple times, but most famously, I think probably told it on the Steve Austin podcast. In fact, if you search for that on YouTube, there's a clip of him just telling that story um, where he says that before this match backstage, Kento Kobashi thought he was going to be received for this crowd as like a sneaky, evil foreign heel. And he was telling for all these spots, in that kind of um, mold. And Joe had to keep trying to convince him, like, look, all these people have illegally bought your tapes for years. You're a legend to these people. You're going to be a god to them. Like, you're not going to come out and get the reaction that you think you are. Uh, I think Joe says he tried to go through, like, the intermediary that uh, Noah had backstage to try and convince him, and and Kobashi still wasn't completely convinced. He says, like, he was talking to uh, to, uh, Kobashi in, like, his kind of conversational basic Japanese that he had acquired over touring there. And I think he said that, like, until... 
Kobashi like stepped through and heard the chance, he doesn't think Kobashi was fully convinced to like not be a heel. Now, which I'm, is a crazy thing. I am ever the skeptic. You know, this makes for a good story. However, there are a few things that I've heard and seen over the years that make me think, you know, maybe just like maybe go, hmm, I'm not saying Joe's lying or making a story up, but it makes me think like it's possible. Um, first of all, like we discussed earlier, um, uh, Kobashi wrestled Wade Chisholm in uh, Missouri a few days before this. Did not act like a sneaky Japanese heel. Um, he was just kind of Kobashi, just a wrestler. Um, and in The Observer, Meltzer writes that in the days before, Kobashi was telling people he wanted to have the, quote, perfect match. Now, knowing what we know about Kenta Kobashi, does it make sense to you that his idea of the perfect match involved him, like, I don't know, acting like um, Mr. Fuji? You know, like, like yeah. I just, it just, it doesn't, the, those things are feel inconsistent to me. I, again, I, I don't know, you know, I, I you know, I, you know, my, Joe might be telling the truth, but like, it's not beyond a wrestler to like create a little bit of folklore around a match that isn't completely true, right? Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that after the match, actually, because I thought that too, because I mean, I guess technically both things could be true, but I really don't think, like, well, technically it could be true. Like you said, I don't think Kobashi's idea of a perfect match would be to play like 60s foreigner evil stereotypical heel. And I don't know, like, so to me, my hunch is that either Joe isn't telling the truth or the story that we'll talk about later that Dave is reporting that got reported that, that Kobashi was telling people he was going to have the perfect match. That's not true. Like, I don't feel like both of those can be true. I well, one of them, one of them was closer to what actually happened. So, yeah. which gives more credence to one than the other, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know, like, like, just the idea, like, nobody told Kobashi, like, oh yeah, you're wrestling in New York City. This is going to, against like the big, like the biggest, this is going to be a big deal. Like, you know, like he didn't, he did, like just nobody told him that. Like, it just, it's not like when um, Jushin Liger or Keiji Muto came to ROH, people were like, boo, Japanese person, you know, like, <laughs> like it's, I mean, I mean, I guess it's possible that he just didn't think twice about it. But again, he wrestled in a front of a much less quote unquote smart crowd a few days earlier. And that's not what happened. So uh, it's just weird that that would be his expectation. That's all. Well, also, also, like you were saying, like it's hard for you to no one told him. I mean, Joe's story is even stronger than that because Joe's story, if you listen to that story the way he tells it, is that he, the impression you get is that when even when he told Kobashi that like it was a struggle, like Kobashi wasn't convinced that like Joe was telling the truth. So it's not even that he wasn't told. I mean, if you believe Joe's side, it was like Kobashi was like, really, like they're not going to boo me. Like, yes. like even after he was told that, which is kind of crazy to think. But now, now on the side of Joe. Of Joe's story, the face on Kobashi when he comes out there and sees that crowd reacting, it doesn't feel like he's purely acting. It feels like he's like, "Oh my, what, yeah. what an amazing thing this is." I mean, listen, he could have fully been expected to be treated like a hero and still have been amazed by that reaction. So, doesn't necessarily mean anything, but he does seem amazed by the reaction. And there is precedent for this kind of thing because we, for all those who are uh, longtime deep vein thrombosos, which for people that just started listening and go, what the hell did Trevor just say? That's our, one of our terms for our fans along with scarred babies. If you don't know, you're going to have to earn the right to know what those mean. Go back and listen to every episode. But 
if you were back to the final battle 2003 episode where uh, Great Muda wrestled, we told a somewhat similar story there, which I believe, which was that Muda and really all the All Japan guys that were working that card basically thought that uh, they weren't going to have to work hard that night because no one was really going to know who they were or, or at least give that much of a show or that was going to be a very small show. And then Joe was like trying – I think Joe even told this story where he said that once um before the show, Muda saw that um how big the crowd was and how they were chanting and stuff already. He told one of the people with him like go to the bus and get my good gear. Like I'm going to have to work – and that apparently Muda then told the rest of the All Japan guys like – this is not going to be the night off. We thought it was. We're going to have to work harder than just like treat this like a vacation night. But so in that sense, you know, you could argue this is kind of a similar story, although it's happens two years later. Like you were saying, after some other very notable Japanese stars have kind of proven that Ring of Honor is a place where you get huge, respectful reactions. I guess the only thing I would other thing I would say to that is for for more young for younger fans that are listening to the show, you, you do have to remember this was a time period in wrestling where the hot stars of Japan, this was when it was starting to change, did not come over to the U.S. all the time. And they did not necessarily expect to have, like, dedicated fan bases here. It was not as easy to watch the footage and all that stuff. So there was, I imagine, at least for some of them at some point, a bit of like, well, how would they even see me? You know, right? unless they got illegal tapes and things like that. Because nowadays, okay, of course, yeah, everyone can watch everything, but... Right. Um, but of course they need to somebody to tell them like this is that is exactly who the ROH audience is, especially in New York. Like they are the people that get those tapes. Yeah. And then finally, our last little note before Matt File, we can talk about the match and you will go first. Um if you for those who I thought this was just really interesting and it really puts over to an even a new level how incredible Kobashi in this match was. Um, you might notice that Kobashi actually walks up a set of steps to get into the ring. And you might go, if you're a longtime Ring of Honor fan from this era, go, well, I've never seen Ring of Honor have steps normally. Well, they didn't. And there's actually a story behind that. Dave Bixenspan wrote in recent years an article about Joe versus Kobashi for fanbite.com. I'll quote from him. He did, he include, he actually did, conducted some new interviews for this. And I'll quote his article. He wrote, um, when we, he, I think this is a, he, yeah, this is, he interviewed Pele Primo for one part of this, and this is Pele talking. When we set up in New York that Friday, Ken Hirayama from NOAA oversaw everything we were doing and watched the ring as we set it up, recalls Ring of Honor Wrestling School graduate Pele Primo. It's common knowledge that we had a really bouncy flex beam ring, and Ken said there was no way it would work for Kobashi's knees. He couldn't risk it. So we literally had people run from hotel room to hotel room in the New Yorker and steal queen-size blankets and wrap them around every single flex beam on the ring but we also knew ahead of time that he needed that we needed ring steps for kobashi to get in and my god those were some shitty steps ring of honor vice president sid eck made them at at the school slash office in bristol pennsylvania i'm shocked they even lasted that entire weekend and then bix writes in quotes or quotation in uh, brackets then ring of honor or parentheses whatever then ring of honor owner carrie silken confronted the deed confirmed the details of primo's story so like that's how bad kobashi's knees were where they had to adjust the ring and make ring steps just for him like that's how borrowed time this guy was on, actually, his body. And yet he had a matchup. Well, you know what, Matt? Maybe it wasn't a good match because you might hate this match. I don't know. What did you think about this match? Well, first of all, those steps. I mean, that – I mean, I, I don't want to undersell those steps. Like, that was a huge moment that night. 
Like, when those steps were brought out, everybody knew exactly why they were there. And, like, that was just, like, the beginning of, like, this entire segment. Like, Homicide and Jack Evans clear the area. The steps are brought out and just, like, everyone is just, like, about to have a heart attack. Like, they're just, like, screaming for Kobashi. They're like, oh, my God, it's here. Like, it's just the anticipation. Like, I just can't describe it. I mean, I'm sure you were at home, like watch like looking at the um the message board probably having a similar feeling but just like at home like well like in the building everyone's doing the same thing they were just like what the fuck like what's gonna happen is this like this is really gonna happen um i um i'm trying to think of like could there have been a more magical person to appear before this crowd than kenta kobashi because obviously there are bigger stars, right? Like, like you know, The Rock is more famous. Hulk Hogan is more famous. But a guy who had never been in the U.S. before this trip, as far as we can tell, like in terms of wrestling, I'm pretty sure Cage Matt seems to confirm that. Um, he was still considered by many to be the best wrestler in the world. He won Wrestler of the Year the previous two years. He and had, he would win this year. Yes, he had just won. Um, just had this like uh, like epic match that some people you know maybe thought was over the top, but this epic match at the Tokyo Dome with uh, Kensuke uh, Sasuke, uh, um, uh, Kensuke uh, sorry, Kensuke Sasaki, excuse me. I'm, yeah, do not want to mess that one up. Um, uh, he had the match of the year for, in the Observer against Junakiyama in 2004. He had the match of the year against Mitsuhara Masawa in the Observer in 2003. And a match that Gabe, uh, that Dave Meltzer still talks about, like, oh, like this is like just like the gold standard. Although he only gave it five stars, oddly enough. Um, but, um, but, um, so this was a guy who was still in a lot of people's eyes, maybe not everybody's, but in a lot of people's eyes at the top of his game. That no one in this arena, in this in this ballroom, almost no one probably had ever seen live. You know, I'm sure there were a few people that got to go to Japan, but not many. That people probably thought they would never get to see live. And he is just like the icon of icons in terms of like all Japan wrestling. Like like this is a guy, you know, just had all these amazing matches for years and years and years. Just one incredible match after another. Um you know, I think Meltzer probably treated him like he was the best of that whole Four Pillars crew, right? Um, yeah. Uh, not everybody agrees with that, obviously. Like, you know, I think a lot of people still prefer Kawada or Masawa. Um, but, you know, Kawada, you know, a lot of people still loved him in 2005, but he was definitely considered to be on the downswing. Masawa definitely was considered to be on the downswing. Kobashi was still, you know, having these amazing matches that were getting, that was getting all this buzz. And then he comes to the U.S. Again, people again were like, oh my God, this can't be even real. And then he's wrestling the guy that if you could pick anyone in the entire business outside of Japan for Kenta Kobashi to wrestle, no one would have picked anybody besides Samoa Joe, I would say, at this point in time, in 2005. I'd say even if you they had access to the entire rosters of the WWE and TNA, um, Samoa Joe would have been the guy. Would you agree with that? Yeah, in fact, I think in some interview, it might have been the the John Pollock and Wei Ting one or something, or it might have been a Reddit Ask Me Anything, I forget. But either way, someone asked like Gabe, like, what would he have done if Joe wasn't the opponent for Kobashi? And he was, and Gabe was like, the drop-off 
was so incredible. I mean, and then he said my, my backup appointment would have been low key, but he said, I don't mean that as a slight to low key, but like just even Gabe's eyes, like the drop off between like a fitting opponent for Kabashi was, it was basically Joe and then a mile probably, you know, to, to low key. Yeah. And low key would have been, you know, that would have been great. I would have loved to see that match, but what Joe had going for him was he was just on fire that year. Or in the past, in the like couple of years, he had just had that amazing match in TNA. He would become the face of ROH, and also like of all the guys, Joe is the guy that comes off as the heavyweight, you know. Yeah. And like this match was all about like, and we'll talk about it, like going toe to toe with like really powerful strikes, and like Samoa Joe was the guy that could stand up to Kenta Kobashi and look like he belonged physically. Um, Loki is a great wrestler, but Loki's a lot smaller than Kenta Kobashi. And it's a difference, you know. Kenny Kobashi's best, most famous matches were against guys that were were heavyweights, right? Whether it's Misawa yeah. or Kawada or Akiyama or Sasaki or you know who Tawa, you know, just a Stan Hansen, uh, Steve Williams, you know, like all those guys. Yeah. Like, this like people wanted to see a Kenny Kobashi match, and Joe was the guy that was going to be able to give that to them. And I don't think, I don't think anyone really thought that they were going to get the top tier Kenta Kobashi. I think they thought that Kobashi would have a good match with Joe and Joe would, you know, work really hard. I don't think anyone thought they would have top tier Kenta Kobashi. And, you know, I think we can discuss after the match, like if Kobashi did every single thing that he would have done if this match was at Budokan in front of a hundred thousand people, as Hulk Hogan would say, um, you know, he did say that once that he was wrestled in front of a hundred thousand at the Budokan. <laughs> that's that's the joke. I don't actually think that. <laughs> I want to make that clear? But like, all right. So the match is happening, right? And Joe comes out, and you know he is just on fire with intensity. He looks, he's like he's like a chip on his shoulder. He's like, this is my home. Like he's just like a level above in terms of intensity. Um. I'd be very interested to find out what Kenta Kobashi thinks about this match. Like, I know it's probably a big deal for him because he wrestled in, this is the only time he wrestled in New York City. And like, I, th- you know, not to be chauvinistic about New York City, but it's, you know, when you're a performer, you probably want to perform here, right? Um, and this is the only time he ever did that. So it's probably a big deal to him, but like, he's had so many like big, 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 amazing main event matches in terms of, in front of huge crowds, like, I don't know where this would rank as far as like most special moments in his career. For Samoa Joe, I feel like I have a pretty decent guess about where this would rank in terms of a special moments in his career. <laughs> and like you could tell, like this is just he's just on for this. Um the other notable thing I gotta say about this is this is one of those rare ROH three camera edits where they actually use the third camera angle that they were um that they were filming from because usually it's just like two and they have just a few matches over the years where they um through the years where they have um (laughs) where they have just we have the three and this is one of them and i feel like it really does add a lot of like a cinematic quality to the match i don't think this is actually true but i don't know like if it appeared this way to you almost like an optical illusion did the did it feel like the the room was a little bit dimmer and darker and more dramatic during this match than it did during the other matches? Because it felt that way to me. And again, I don't think it was. I think it was just like the way they cropped it and the, that third camera angle that made it feel that way. But that's how it felt to me. Like, and when a main event like has like a little bit of a dimmer, like 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 almost like a little more of darkness, it feels more epic to me. Um, and that's how it felt to me. Like just the way it looked felt 
felt like the most the best produced match ROH has ever put out on DVD up to this point, I would say, which, you know, is I, fitting. I didn't notice that, but I, I was going to ask you, did you notice, in one game interview on this, I, I he said something to the effect of, like, when they were editing it, he said because their facial expressions were so good, like, he said, like, we made a point when editing this to, like, get as many shots of, like, close-ups on their faces that we could. I did notice they really played... I, I felt like in terms of their editing, I thought they were really good, like, in that sense. I really did notice that, and I thought that was the right choice for this match. Like, did you notice that? Absolutely, yeah. And it really it really took the uh, production to another level by doing that, for sure. Like, I mean, that's one of the things you get with these handheld cameras, so, like, use it, right? You don't really get to see that too yeah. often um, in the two-camera edits, and this one you really do. So Joe's out there, you know, his face is super intense. And then, you know, the crowd's going nuts for Joe. And then the music stops. And, you know, again, the crowd's just buzzing. And then Kobashi's music plays and everyone's going insane. And then the pop that he gets as he walks through the the curtain is insane. And like, you know, I, I got to say, this match translates very well from like the atmosphere, um, from the live crowd to the DVD. But I can't describe how loud those pops were for Kobashi coming out for Kobashi being announced for his music hitting like just I think to this day like some of the loudest like reactions I've ever heard and again this was not that big of a crowd but the acoustics in that room were just so amazing I was you know again standing in the general admission section a little bit far back um you know you know wasn't right there but like just being in the mix of those people like really felt super special and like I said Kobashi like the the look in his eyes as he looks around and takes in the reaction. He can't believe he's getting it, but like the way we were all feeling was like, I can't believe this fucking guy is standing right here. Like this is Kenta Kobashi. <laughs> like it's just like like literally the closest thing you can get to like a god to this audience. Because again, it's someone that you never thought you could see live. You know, you could go see all the great American stars live. But you never thought you were gonna get to see Kobashi. And there he was. I I was gonna say like maybe the other guy that would have had something similar would have been Kawada. Um, but you know, this, it was Kobashi and he was there and he's almost like stone faced, like almost in awe. And, you know, when Kobashi's, um, you know, they both get some streamers for their introductions. Um, like Joe is looking like, you know, he's just determined to defend his status in the territory. Like, like I said, he, and when he was coming out, I was like, this is my home. And that's the story of the match, right? It's like this, this young up and come comer, but he is the he is the bull of the yard in ROH, right? He is the the king of ROH. Not the champion, but he's the king of ROH. Kobashi is the legend, right, that Joe like looks up to, but he's coming into his yard. Right? And and so that's that's all you need to know, right, about this match. Like you really don't need to know much more than that to understand the story. Um and so when Kobashi's announced, he gets lots of streamers in the Kobashi colors, look great. Um I remember even marking out when, like, Kobashi shook hands. It was like, Kobashi's following the code of honor, too? Like, just like, like that sort of thing. <laughs> like, and so the, the match starts. And, um, this match is interesting because, like, in some ways, in some weird way, you could almost look at this as, like, a bit of a spot fest in that there's not a ton of, like, transitional mat work. You know what I mean? It's like they go from one really big sequence to another with with a couple of holds like in the middle. 
but it's like it's like you you remember this match in vignettes. It's like just segments after segment after segment of like things that are getting the crowd to go crazy. So um, so I'll do the play by play because like I I've seen this match so many times. Like I told you the other day, like I probably don't even need to watch this again, but I did. But like I'm thinking about this, like I don't know about you, but I don't know what match I've seen more than any other match in my entire life. But as far as matches of the of the past like fifteen years, it's probably this one. It's probably this match that it, I've seen the most. It's up there, and there are not many matches ever where I've watched the match and then I immediately watch it again. Like and I've done, <laughs> like I told you, I did that for this show, and I've done that the first time I watched it. Like you no, know, even if I really like a match, I'll be like, oh, I'll watch that again in a month or a year. That'll be great. This is a match where multiple times I've watched it. I'm like, I'll play that again. I'll, I'll watch it one more time. Yeah. For sure. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's such a, like, an amazing thing to behold. And so, like, so the first move of the match is Joe just, like, k- kicking at Kobashi's legs. And Kobashi's just sort of, like, slapping his legs, like, to be like, you know, I'm fine. The first big move of the match is Joe, he backs Kobashi into the ropes and slaps him hard across the face, which I went insane for at the time. I was like, oh my God, like, he's, like, Kobashi is, like, He's, he's doing this. He's allowing it. Like, and so Kobashi <laughs> just like gives, gives him the death stare, like in shock. And so he responds by pushing him into the corner and delivering the first of many, many chops. Now, you and I have been talking a lot about chops over the past few months. Jay Lethal's chops, Roderick Strong's chops, Samoa Joe's chops, Loki's chops. This is on a different level. And like, hearing it in that building with those acoustics, it was just like, oh my God. It's like he shot him. Like, that's how loud the, that chop was. And, like, when that happens, the crowd just goes berserk, and we get, and this is, I think, official. I think we can both um, say this for certain, at least on an ROH DVD, the very first This Is Awesome chant in the history of Ring of Honor. Can you confirm that I'm right about this? That might be, I, I, my memory is awful, but I trust you. But, like, I don't remember another one. Because, like, I remember asking you a few months ago, like, when is the first This Is Awesome chant? Because that was a big TNA chant, but we never got in an ROH. And I was waiting and waiting, and I was like, okay, this is it. Like, I remember this chant. I remember people talking about how this chant happened before the match even happened. Like, it obviously, like, was – you heard it plenty in TNA at that point, but I don't remember one in ROH before this. And it was for the chop by by Kobashi and then them doing that test of strength in the middle. And I think more than anything, it was just like – Oh my God, Kobashi is standing in front of us. And like, he's like, and he's like into it. Like, I think that's what it was. Like, we're just like, we can't believe we're seeing this. I think a lot of the reaction of this match was, we can't believe we're seeing this. And so, um, Joe backdrops out of the test of strength, hits a hard shoulder block to Kobashi, hits the tope suicida immediately. And it's just, everyone's going insane. Joe is just like on fire. He kicks at the guardrail to show like, Oh, I'm just, I'm into this now. And he brings it back into the ring. So now we get like our first, that was like the first vignette. We slow things down a bit. Uh, Joe gets Kobashi in a rear chin lock briefly. Uh, actually turns it into the stretch, stretch plum for a minute and like kind of smirks and Kobashi makes the ropes. And then we get into sort of like our, our second little vignette, which is, um, Kobashi, he starts shaking off Joe's chops and like every time Joe chops him, Kobashi just kind of like, stares at him and he's just like the crowd's just going nuts because Kobashi's just fighting these off 
And so then Kobashi starts chopping, and Joe does not shake off Kobashi's chops, which are just on another planet. So Joe comes back with kicks, and then I have to say, I do not think to this day I have ever heard a louder thigh slap than from the Enzigiri that Joe hits Kobashi with. This show had a lot of them, and I, it has to be the acoustics in the building, but this was the loudest thigh slap kick I have ever heard in my life. To this day, it'll probably continue to be allowed as forever. Um, and then Joe goes into these Kawada kicks, um, which are awesome, but not as awesome as each time Kobashi pops up, screams in his face and starts chopping away. Like the crowd, oh my God, the crowd's just going nuts. He's just like, he pops up ah, and just starts chopping at him. <laughs> Joe comes back with knees to the head, knocks Kobashi down. Just seeing Kobashi sell for all this stuff was surreal. And we get this big ROH chant. And Kobashi rolls out of the ring to avoid Joe's onslaught. So Joe follows him right out and sets him up for the ole ole kick. And if you thought it was crazy watching Kobashi take these other moves, seeing like that's the ole ole kick and it's being done to Kenta Kobashi. (laughs) And like, and Joe actually kicks the guardrails apart. And then Kobashi blocks the second ole ole kick with a chop, then chops Joe into the seat. Then chops Joe from the seat over the guardrail, and the crowd goes even wilder. This is the one part of the match live where I couldn't really see what was going on because, like, I was just like the crowd was standing up. Fortunately for me, they did very little on the floor, but like, I did not see Kobashi DDT Joe on the floor. Um, but that's what he does. And now they're back in the ring, and Kobashi's turn to slow it down a little bit. We're kind of like, um, Kobashi gets a front face lock in. But, you know, again, very short. Joe stands, gets to the rope, so Kobashi chops him some more. And then we get the next sequence. Kobashi does the Irish whip with the knees, and then a chop to the neck, sending Joe to the floor, and or to the ground. And then Kobashi does, like, a jumping tomahawk chop down to Joe's neck. And this then uh, Kobashi gets a front face lock on, and this is when the crowd decides to do their next This Is Awesome chant, in a front face lock. Um Joe with a vertical suplex. Um, um, Kobashi chops at Joe. Joe comes back with kicks. And they have uh, probably their craziest chop battle in the middle of the ring. Like they're just chopping back and forth and they're going insane. And then the crowd goes even nuts when Kobashi screams and does his big chop comeback, eventually knocking Joe down with the chop. Um, and this is when we start to see the famous, if you've ever like seen anything from this match, the the bruising on Samoa Joe's chest and on his shoulder. And it just gets worse from there. Um, uh, Kobashi gets an abdominal stretch at one point. Uh, Kobashi gets another two count with a chop down onto Joe's neck. So he is working on Joe's neck. Like that is one thing that's going on because he's setting up for some of these big suplexes later. Um and Kobashi, uh, he gets some more holds on, but he doesn't forget to chop down onto Joe's head while he's in the hold. Um, and uh, at one point, uh, Kobashi's chopping at Joe's neck, but Joe blocks a spinning chop with an STO and a big senton. Uh, then Joe actually, after Kobashi blocks a power bomb, Joe actually buckle bombs him, which we saw a buckle bomb earlier on the show between Gibson and Yang, but... This was not a common move in ROH at the time. So to see Samoa Joe uh, powerbombing Kenta Kobashi into the turnbuckle was pretty wild. Um, and again, then Joe hits the face wash and the running boot, again, to Kenta Kobashi. <laughs> then he hits the muscle buster, you know, like, which is, it felt pretty abrupt, but like, crowd went nuts and he gets a two count. 
and Joe does his like, oh my god, I can't believe he kicked out of the muscle buster, and like he's just stunned, but he he gains his composure, does his sequence where he hits the power bomb, and Kobashi kicks out, which allows Joe to go right into the STF, and Kobashi is fighting to the face lock, which I thought was really cool because most guys when Joe gets the STF. They don't really like fight it that much, but Kobashi was fighting that face lock for a long time until Joe finally got it. And Kobashi almost made the ropes. Um, so Joe turns it into the cross face, and Kobashi again almost makes the ropes again. So Kobashi turns it into a ri- I mean, so Joe turns it into a ring of Saturn. And finally, Kobashi gets his foot on the rope to break the hold. So this whole sequence is like of like Joe dominating is like. You know, it's kind of like Joe's just pulling everything out at Kobashi. He's he does the muscle buster. He's doing his big holds. Kobashi's not staying down. Like he's just, but he's unloading the tank. Um, Joe runs at Kobashi, who chops him and hits a half Nelson suplex, and that pretty much cuts off most of Joe's offense for the rest of the match. Like he has a few hope spots after that, but when Kobashi rises up after that half Nelson suplex, he screams Joe's name. And then does his machine gun chops that he obviously stole from Eddie Kingston um, <laughs> in, in the corner. He's And, like, this is great because, like, what Kobashi does, he's so brilliant. Like, after all, so many of these chops, he's, like, looking at the crowd, getting them going nut, even nutser than they already are. But what he does here is, as he does the machine gun chops, he repeatedly, like, starts to get tired and slows down. And then he eventually screams and fires up again. And like each time that happens, everyone just goes more and more crazy. And it's just such, so much fun. And he just, he chops Joe so many times. I felt really bad for Joe here. Just seeing the bruise on his, on his body, like realizing like, oh shit, he's like gotta be an actual, like tremendous pain right now. And then when he's finally done with the machine gun chops, Kobashi puts his hands together and hits a bunch of two handed chops to Joe. Even after Joe falls to the, to the floor, or to the, to the, to the mat, Kobashi still comes down with these like two-handed chops to Joe's disgustingly red, black, and blue chest. And then Kobashi hits a second half Nelson suplex. He covers Joe. Joe grabs the bottom rope again. And Joe gets another like wind and he's hammering at Kobashi, but Kobashi grabs a sleeper. And as Joe is about to grab the ropes, Kobashi takes the sleeper and turns it into the sleeper suplex. And this was so on top of his head that I vividly remember this. I was like super embarrassed actually because I, in the crowd, let out a high-pitched squeal when the suplex <laughs> happened. Like, I, I swear. Like, yeah, like what you just did. Exactly, but louder. Like, it, but it was like completely natural. Like, I was just like, oh my God, like what just happened? Like, I was like afraid for Joe. But, but like Joe, like when, when Kobashi went to cover him, like Joe like kicked out, like, like almost like desperate, like scrambled to get Kobashi off of him almost like, and turned to his stomach, like almost like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm alive. I'm alive. And, but then he collapsed again. So Kobashi lifts him up. Joe tries to like paintbrush him with these slaps, but, and clothesline him. But Kobashi lifts his arm, so like Joe clotheslines into Kobashi's arm, and then Kobashi hits a bunch of spinning chops, really hard spinning chops, and Kobashi lifts his arm up to signal for the lariat. As he's doing this, Joe lets out one final scream of passion, and then almost like runs into the lariat as Kobashi nails him with it, and Kobashi gets the win. The legend was just too much. For the young warrior, um, like I said, 
you know, there, it was, it would almost in a way, it was like these sequences were almost like big spots. Like it wasn't like they were, they were high flying. There's a lot of chops, obviously. But like each sequence, they went from one to another. The crowd went crazy for every single one. And the story was so simple, but the emotion was so intense. And they both just seemed absolutely exhausted. Like they fought for everything, like just absolute gladiators. And like you watch a lot of wrestling matches and the guys are sweaty, you know, and they're exhausted, but they were so drenched after this match. Like it was so visible. And of course, Joe's chest, it was the most memorable live experience of a wrestling match. Like there are a few others that I do think rival it, but like, I I remember it like being there and being like, Oh my God, I I can't believe I get to see this, like this close. And like for this amount of money, like in my backyard, like, and like, I remember thinking like, man, a year ago, I wasn't even going to ROH shows. And now it's just like, I'm absolutely going to go to as many as I can. Like I was just so, I was so impressed and so grateful that I got to be here for this. Like, I feel like the the gratitude in the audience, like after the match, you started getting the match of the year chant. I remember just like looking around at the people, like people, strangers, and just like kind of like looking, be like nodding. Like, yeah, it's like, yeah, I think so. I think that's, I think that one is, is real this time. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's my recap. Decent match, right? It was all right. I mean, (laughs) It wasn't well, as good, it wasn't know. as good as Ricky Reyes against Pele Primo, but you know, that was a good <laughs> well, one. I'll, I'll say this on rewatch: it's not as good as Nigel McGuinness Colt Cabana European rounds, but it's pretty <laughs> no, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, God, that was a great recap, and I don't know how I'm going to follow it because like this is a tough uh, match to cover because well, oh, but you know, but you know what you do, you find things that no one else notices, and I think that's, I, and I, I bet you did for this one too. Well. Uh, this is a match where, like, you know, it's tough to cover because you, you kind of touched on this earlier in the show. Like, so many of these Ring of Honor shows, there's a, there's reviews for every wrestling show and every re- Ring of Honor show. We're not the first people to cover any of these. But usually for most shows, if I'm sure, Matt, you feel the same way. You've followed, seen this, too. You look for it online, especially if it's like a B show. You get the same few reviews pop up, stuff like that. This is one of those shows where even a lot of people that hardly ever reviewed ring of honor would drop it and review just this show or just this match. And so there's so many reviews out there, but I guess to try and sum up why it's special, I think a little bit of background, which we kind of already touched on, but, um, I think you have to think about what, how special this was in the context of ring of honor, even because basically up to this point, ring of honor had, if you look at their entire history, once a year they they flew in a big Japanese name to be like a, a show that was kind of built around them. Like the first year, two thousand two, it was All Star Extravaganza. It was probably the lesser, not to denigrate these guys, but like you got Otani and, and Masato Tanaka, Sajiro Otani, Masato Tanaka against uh, Loki and Steve Carino. And then the next year, you obviously got all the All Japan guys, but the big draw was at Final Battle 2003, but the big draw was Great Muda. 2004, you had the Liger double shot. And then 2005, you had Kobashi. But in, two, in 2002, three and four, I think you look at those matches, every time it was a legend, but they were a little bit removed from their best years. Like, even Muda... You know, Kaiji Mudo had was wrestler of the year in 2001, which was like a great comeback year for him. He was already back to, you know, take half a step back from by 2003, late 2003. Um, you know, and I would say all of those guys 
if 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 a C grade would be like the just doing the minimum to get by and not get turned on by the crowd to satisfy the crowd, and a a plus was like everything you could do. I would say all of those guys before Kobashi gave like some variation of a B. Like they did more than they absolutely had the bare minimum, but they didn't go all out. I would say maybe like Liger gave like a B plus, and and and, and honestly, that's what you know for these shows. You know, there weren't big crowds. I, I and they were all you know you got use your bumps where you can. Uh, I don't blame them. Now, well, I guess what you said we'll talk about later and we will, we can save that for later. I don't know if Kobashi did literally everything he could in this match, but he gave a hell of a lot closer to an A performance than anybody else in this role so far had when visiting Ring of Honor. And also, like you mentioned up top, unlike all those other guys, you know, this was a guy that had just won Wrestler of the Year for the last 2 years, which is, you know, the Observer Awards are a vote a fan vote. So a lot of people felt that way. He was about to win it this year. And so here's a guy, you know, yes, he's physically breaking down. He's 38. He, you know, his, he's not at his physical peak, but I wouldn't agree with this, but some people would say he was at his working peak, you know? Um, and, and he comes in here and he works Joe. And then I think that's, or that's one thing that makes it special. Just, he rose the bar for this kind of wrestler, legend coming to ring of honor but the second thing i would say that makes it special is that so often when guys wrestle legends when it's like the local fave versus the legend they wrestle a certain way they wrestle very deferentially where they sell a ton for the guy and they really build the match so it's all about the star because they know that's who the people came to see like a good example for ring of honor would be the great mood tag you know that match was all about it wasn't about Arashi. It wasn't about Dan Moff. It wasn't about Christopher Dan. There was everyone building it to highlight. You came to see great Muda. Here are the great Muda spots. And Matt, in your great recap of this match, you talk about how like there was a few spots early on where the crowd really went to another level. And I think it might've been, if I had to pinpoint to one spot, it might've either been when Joe slaps Kobashi really hard across the face or when he early like knocks him uh, Kobashi off his feet. It was one of those two spots where I feel like the crowd realized that's the moment where the crowd goes up even another level for the rest of the night. And I feel it's like they realize at that moment, like we are not just going to see Kento Kobashi, the legend kind of be highlighted and maybe hit a signature sauce. We are going to see Kento Kobashi versus Samoa Joe. Like this is a serious match and Joe is not showing this guy like, extreme respect yes, like and, 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 and i hate to interrupt because i've talked a lot but like no, go I, just, on, go on. I do want to confirm like that's exactly right like it was like there were these moments where like i and everyone else in the crowd was like oh my god like this is going to be like the real shit you know what i mean like this isn't going to be just yeah. like uh you know come and say hi and do some stuff like this is like samoa kenikobashi is going to give samoa joe a match and he is going to take stuff and like he's going to get a tope suicide onto him at the very beginning and he's going to let Samoa Joe slap him in the face and he's going to take the ole ole kick and he's going to do all that stuff and it's just like this is going to this is like a match this is this isn't just like a um you know a a a a, a tour of like the world you know he's not just kind of on vacation yeah. here he is doing it like he he is doing what you want you, you, what nobody would actually have dreamed what he have actually done, and so you're completely right about that. Anyway, go on, continue. I'm sorry. No, I, I interject whenever you need to because uh, obviously you have great thoughts, and yeah, I um, and who wouldn't want to be told that they had a good point? I mean, uh, but uh, 
No, and I thought you did a great job highlighting kind of right around those first few spots. You kind of pinpoint a couple of them. I think you you can audible like for anyone again. This match is free on YouTube from Ring of Honor officially, so you don't have to feel guilty about it. Like you, I think you'll agree with us. Like you can audibly hear the crowd kind of realize like this isn't going to be Muda in two thousand three. Even though the crowd I think was happy with Muda in two thousand three, but this isn't going to just be a performance that Kobashi could have gotten away with. Which is like you know you hit your few fig- signature spots, you kind of space them out, you salute the crowd a lot, stuff like that. Like no, they are trying to have something great here, and, and Joe is going to be as big a part of this almost as Kobashi is. And and I think it's a it was really important for them to let Joe kind of really get the better of Kobashi in, in that opening few minutes, including hitting the elbow suicida, like in the first few minutes way earlier than he normally would in the Olay case. I think it was important to let the fans know, like this isn't going to be Joe selling for 80% of the match for Kenta Kobashi, you know, like this, this is a match. And I think that was really important to put that right up front to let the fans know that. And yeah, like, Obviously, like you said, it's, a, it's an incredible match. You know, it's a very, I do think there's a story, but it's just a very simple story. It's, you know, it's the best guy from a foreign country, you know, coming to the best guy of the local place. And it's the guy in the local place with a huge chip on his shoulder, like you said, who's deciding, like, I'm not going to let this guy, like, just walk all over me where we're at my home like I, i'm not gonna do it like you know what i'm the like yeah he may be the legend i'm the legend here and i'm gonna wrestle like that like joe wrestles in a you know i feel like it must be so hard for a wrestler to wrestle a legend and not just wrestle in a very deferential like yeah, i said right. way like like, like like it's gotta be hard to be like no i want to kick your like one of the first moves i want to do is i want to slap you really hard right in the fucking face like that's got to be – that takes some balls to do and not just be like, oh, I'm going to sell. I'm going to make you so impressed with me because I'm going to make you look so good and make your night so easy on you. Like Joe does not do that. He, he treats him like he would treat anybody else, and that's what makes it incredible. And I think one of the things that's great about this match is there are momentum swings back and forth. But like – like again, another thing you would see in legend matches a lot of times is maybe the legend goes, I'll do the guy a favor. I'll let the young guy get 80% of the match and then the last 20% of the match, I'll hit all my signature stuff and move when that's not this match. It, it's back and forth. There's de- definite momentum swings and I, I think that's really important. And, and the other thing that's great about that is like – both guys, you're just shocked the whole match that each guy is selling and taking the offense that they're taking. Because Kobashi is such a legend, you wouldn't expect him to take the offense and take everything he's taking from Joe. And Joe is always portrayed as such a top-tier guy and carries himself in such a way in Ring of Honor that, like, it's crazy as a Ring of Honor fan to see, like, Joe taking these insanely disgusting head drop suplexes where he's landing right on his goddamn head or, you know, getting chopped, like you said, till he's like his skin is turning red and even dark red, almost to black, like welting up. And, you know, both guys, when either guy's on offense, you can't believe the other guy is taking it just because the aura of both guys is so high, you know, is such a revered thing. And that's incredible about it. And then the final thing I think that's really incredible is the crowd because I think this is, you know, you absolutely the crowd, you know, added to this match. When you told me about this match, I remember everyone saying how great it was. And then I remember when I first watched this match, I could not believe this is one of the first times in my life. And, you know, I've watched older territory wrestling and stuff, and I've seen more examples of this, but I've never still very rare seen a match like this. It is 23 minutes 
other than a few little submissions in the middle, it is almost all action. And the crowd does not go down from minute one to minute end. They are constantly loud and like they never get tired. And again, like I was saying to you before, Matt, the fact that they did that on a show where they were hot the whole show, this crowd, you guys never went down for a second for this match. And that is amazing. And it definitely elevated the match, even though it would have been a great match on its own. And it is just, it's funny. Like there are so many matches where it's a dream match and it doesn't live up to your hype, but it, but it's still very good because your hype was so high or there's a match that's great and you didn't expect it to be that to be great. And so it blows you away because it exceeds your expectations. This is the rare match where you're, this was it, it lived, you dreamed really high and it lived up to your dream. Like what you thought this could possibly be. Like I remember reading the results online and thinking that this was going to be like the Liger match. It was going to be like a good four star match probably that, you know, or maybe I, I had a few fears that even it would be a less than that. I thought like, you know, Kobashi, you know, his physical time is catching up to him. He's going to do enough to get by. And then when people like you told me how amazing it was, and I remember even just being amazed that he even he even took the muscle buster, even though I know that's a move that like Mohammed Yone used in, in Noah. Just the idea that like he let Joe give him the muscle buster, like even that was a huge deal. Just hearing that he did that, and I and I just think it's incredible. You know, it, it's hard for me to keep finding the words. I, I guess the last little thing I'm seeing, I'm thinking of is, and again, another thing that you maybe think about and you really, you brought up on your review is. The facial expressions, particularly from Kobashi, are so great. And I think when you see Kobashi here, you see a guy who can't physically do everything he used to do. And like the Kensuke Sasaki match you reference, um, that was a match famous because he did so many chops. And I think that was part of a transition of Kobashi realizing he couldn't do everything he used to do or he couldn't do it at least as often. So he was going to have to do things that were more about like, how would I just go more extreme with the number of chops I do? And I think you in this match, you see a guy that he can't do everything he used to do, but he milks every single spot he does to. He gets the maximum you can out of it. He knows exactly when to look the, to the crowd. He knows exactly when to make a facial expression and what facial expression to make. He knows exactly when to pause after what move for how long. Like I, when, when I watch a guy, him in this match, I'm feeling like, this is a guy, he, there's not a drop more he could have got out of any moment in this match. Like, I feel he's gained the maximum amount about everything he do he does. And I think, like, we'll get to when Melchner's review, since I'm like, actually, when you look at this match, Kobashi didn't do that much stuff. But I think you don't notice that because he's getting everything he can out of every little thing he does. And my favorite moment in this match is right at the end where Samoa Joe is like doubled over and he just lets out this scream and you mention it and, and Kobashi's about to hit the lariat and kill him. And he lets out this scream and his face is just full of anger, but also it looks like he's on the verge of tears. And like you said, he takes like one or two steps forward into the lariat and dies. And to me, that moment is like the non corny version of the Ric Flair, Shawn Michaels, like Ric Flair crying on a seat saying, I love you. And Shawn Michaels saying, I love you. And Ric Flair crying. <laughs> Just saying, just super kick me because it's this moment where Joe knows he's dead and there's nothing he can do about it. But instead of standing there forever and crying, it's just like, I'm not going to be able to get out of the way of this. I know I'm fucked. I'm just going to, I'm so pissed off, but fine. Like here I go. I'm going to die. 
and I just love that moment. It's such a badass way for a guy on Joe's level to like, you know, go down on the sword. It is so awesome. And yeah, this is five stars. This is an amazing, amazing match. One of the best matches in Ring of Honor history. Now, let me ask you this. Because I, you know, I know that Kobashi had other great matches after this. Is this his final legendary singles match? I'm not sure, but I mean, we'd have to ask like a guy like Alan Cunahan for that. But but there's nothing I, that's, I, there's nothing super obvious that comes after this. Yes, this is definitely his last like match of the year. And obviously, he yeah, he gets you know injuries and cancer. Like he's on borrowed time at this point, you know, yes. physically. Also, and, and I think again. Oh, so go on. No, I was gonna say no. Go ahead. No, I'll say that for later. I, I was just gonna say. Um, so even if he is slowing down, I don't necessarily even wonder. Like, like when we think about, did he do all he did in this match? I don't know if he did every single thing he could have done if he would have been in like a Tokyo Dome or Budokan main event. But I will also say, if things that maybe he didn't quite do everything you might expect from Kobashi in like 2000 or 98 or something, I also think part of that is because he was in a time in his career where even in his big Japan matches, some of them, I think he was realizing like, you know, I can't do everything anymore. I mean, again, this was a guy, he needed steps to get into the ring. He needed, his handler had to tell them that ring's too bouncy for his knees. Like, well, there's, there's another thing. There's another thing too. Oh, go on. Um, so Kobashi had won this, this would be Kobashi's third wrestling observer match of the year in a row, right? He won the match of the year with Masao in 03, with Akiyama in 04, and now with Samoa Joe in 05. This is also Ring of Honor's first of three consecutive observer matches of the year, um, which is a pretty cool stat, I would have to say. Um, but you know, Kobashi did a lot more in that match with Akiyama, right? Um, yeah. I think he even did a moonsault. Um, but which of those two matches is more remembered now? Which match do people talk about uh, in the 2020s? Did they talk about the Akiyama match or did they talk about the Samoa Joe match? Um, both are still well-remembered matches. The the degree of legendary nature of those two matches, I don't think it's really even close. I mean, the Akiyama match headlined the first Noah show at the Tokyo Dome. That's a really big deal. But is it talked about nearly as much as the Samoa Joe versus Kent Kobashi match? Uh, at least in uh, in North America, it sure isn't. Yeah, I was just going to say the one thing I would say is I agree, but we I would worry that we're looking at this through North American eyes. You know, where I have no idea how the average Japanese fan sees Joe versus Kobashi. Yeah, or but like and all at the same time, like do, you know, like do do the big wrestling fans in Japan like was this made a big deal to them? Like at the time, like I don't know. I mean. You know the content. The, con- TV, the context so matters. Like, I feel like a lot of people, you know, like yeah, like like it aired, right? But was it treated as a big yeah. deal in Japan? I mean, like they, it's not like they brought Joe in for like a big run. I know he had some matches in Noah, but like they never really made a big deal out of him. Mm-hmm. I don't he know. He did but work Masawa once. It's a good question. Noah. It's a good question though. Like, so anybody, if if anybody um, who is either lives in Japan or is or is from Japan or you know uh, is more in tune with uh, you know that the culture uh, of fan there, you know, I'd be curious to know which match is considered more legendary, the Akiyama match or the Samoa Joe match. I think that's a very good point. Yeah, you're right though. Like the Akiyama match being that Tokyo domain event probably does weigh a little bit uh, heavier in Japan than it does here. And the other thing I want to mention is Samoa Joe, like this caps off an amazing 12 month period for him. Cause you think about 
from October 2004 to October 2005, he wrestled three different matches in the U.S. that were given five stars by Dave Meltzer in the Wrestling Observer. And as we've talked about before, this was a rarity back then. It's, it was it was last it was 1997, and then it went all the way to 2004 with Joe versus Punk two, and in that time frame. Dave had not given a match in the U.S. five stars, and then he gives Samoa Joe three of them in one year. He gives it to Joe Punk two. He gives it to Joe da- Christopher Daniels and AJ Styles and on at TNA Unbreakable, and he gives it to Joe Kobashi. Um, and here's and here's what's crazy when you think about that, Matt. You think in your I I know I think you agree I know that you agree on this. Um, he probably deserves two more because Dave never reviewed Joe Necro. And while I don't know if that would have been Dave's thing, I feel very strongly that Dave would not have given that five stars, at least not back yeah. then. Yeah. But I think when we reviewed it for the show, we agreed that was five stars. And I would, I, in my opinion, Joe, I know I like it a bit more than Joe Punk 2. You like it a little bit less, but still really, really love it. I, in my opinion, Joe versus Punk 3 is also five stars. So, that's five matches I could see this guy getting five stars for in a year. That's and, true. Although, and the, and oh, that's true. Although back in that era, there's a lot of matches I would have given five stars to that Dave didn't. Not a lot, but like a few. Yeah. Like Dave was pretty stingy with the five stars back then. Um, whereas not so much anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and what's insane is uh, you could argue, and I would, that pretty much all those matches – we're very different from each other. Like the TNA three-way is kind of your state of your art, like high spot work rate three-way. Uh, Joe versus Kobashi is like this epic, hard hitting heavyweight war. Um, Joe versus Necro is more Necro's match. And it's this crazy bloody spectacle that has plunder and goes all over the, the crowd and all that. And it's short, uh, you know, Joe versus punk matches are these long story, very story intensive building on everything that they've done in ring of water before callback spots, to their previous matches built around headlocks. Like, and the, and I think Joe's magic is these matches are all so different from each other. Yet. I never feel like Joe is different from Joe. Like, I feel like, there are some wrestlers that can have very different matches from each other from other matches and it's because they can change up their style or their character i feel like in all those matches they're all very different yet i feel like joe is being joe in every single one of them which i think is kind of like an incredible skill let where joe he's be always joe. the same yeah let joe be joe it's old not sleepy joe let me tell you and uh i i just i think it's an incredible he would you know joe would keep doing great stuff he would never have a year like this again from October 04 to October 05. To me, this is like the peak yeah, I, of Joe I, in a one year. I mean, he'd probably say the same thing, I would guess. Yeah. I mean, like just in terms of like, yeah, I mean, the accolades that he was getting from the people that were paying attention, you know, it was a smaller audience than he would eventually have. But yeah, just what a run. Um, you know, this was one of those deals where like, you know, you were talking about like the crowd and what that did. Like this was a match where like – it was just such an incredible feeling to be there that I like almost didn't believe my lying eyes. Like I was like, when I left, I was like, that was freaking amazing. But I don't, and I'll, and I'll, when I read like what I wrote right after, I, you know, we'll see. But like, I was almost like, I don't want to go around telling people this was like the greatest match of the year. Cause it's just like being there live definitely would have must've clouded how I saw this. Like it was a lot of chops. You know what I mean? Like it was like, yeah, I, I'm sure that it's not going to be that good when 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 I watch it on tape. And then like, holy fucking shit, it was like I remember 
when this DVD came out, like I pre-ordered it, like I was just so excited when the when the uh, footage from Japan dropped, which was not the full match. I remember like downloading, like you know, watching that online. This was still like I don't think it was YouTube. Like YouTube was very much in its infancy, but like I found the footage, I watched that, I was like, it comes off pretty well. And then I remember when the DVD came, like I kept waiting for it to come, waiting for it to come. And I remember the day that I like one, like the day that I expected it to come. I remember I was still living with my parents. I was in the basement. I don't live there anymore. I was. 22 give me a break um but like i I was there um and i remember like the mail came i could you could like sort of hear it from inside like you could hear like the mailbox like kind of like flap up and down so i ran to the front door i looked in the mailbox it wasn't there i was like fuck i I, like I, i really want this dvd and and then um i was i went back down to my computer I don't know, probably send someone I, an I am complaining about how I didn't get the DVD. <laughs> Maybe it was you. Um, and then I like about, I don't know, 10 minutes later, I heard the flap again and I was like, what? And I went up and it was, it was just the Joe vs. Kabachi DVD. That was, it was like, 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 like he had forgotten, like the mailman had forgotten to <laughs> drop it off. And I was like, oh, this is something that a special adult lad would like. Um, <laughs> and, and and I and I and I took it out. I was like so freaking out. And I, I want to ask you this because when you, I, I want to know how many people got this DVD at this time and did anything other than skip immediately to the main event. Did you watch this DVD before you watched the main event, or were you like, no, fuck it, I'm watching Joe vs. Kobashi right this second? I might have watched the whole show, but what I did is I watched that Japanese footage. In fact, you might have been the one that linked me to the Japanese footage. I had watched that so many times, like. I watched that over and over again. Yeah. So I hadn't gotten the full experience, but I was like, I can wait another two and a half hours, you know, now that I've seen a bunch of this. Well, good for you and your self-control. I went right to this match. (laughs) I wanted to see, like, is this really, like, is this what I'm, is this really what I remember? And it freaking was. It was like, oh my, I, I couldn't believe how well it translated. It was amazing. And, um... I'll read more. But the other thing I do just want to mention before we start getting into like, you know, some of the other, you know, people's thoughts. Yeah. So this was by far the most special, like, not by far. This was like, but this was the most special thing I've ever been a part of. Like, I've, I've said this for years. Uh, I've said it probably since like the day after it happened. This is the closest thing to like a religious experience you can get at a wrestling show. Like just from the atmosphere, like literally treating this person like a god or like an idol. Like that's how people <laughs> felt about Kobashi. Like and just like the way it came off, like it was just something that you just just indescribable. The closest thing that I actually I've, oddly enough, the closest thing that I've experienced as far as like a live crowd reaction to a match was actually Brian Danielson against Kenny Omega at uh Grand Slam. It was a much bigger crowd, so like the feeling was not as intense, like the intimacy was not there, but like just the awe that the crowd was expressing at the fact that they're even getting to see this at all. Like that's the only that's the only thing I could really compare this to was that. Like cuz that's like a dream match too and it was like, "Oh my god, like this is actually happening." Um again, it's different, but like it's the closest thing. But like I was about to ask you, yeah. oh, sorry, Jinder, no, I was no, no, going to ask you um like would you say that like, – because I was even going to ask you to compare it to that match. Would you say I would – this is safe to say that like this is your your Woodstock kind of thing where 
it's probably the best bragging thing you have where you can say there was only a few hundred people. There was only like between like 700, 800 people there. Like this is like the coolest boast that you can say in terms of I was there. I was lucky. I can actually say I was there live. Like, do you, yeah. is there anything else that compares? I mean, is there anything even possible in wrestling right now that's like close to this? Like this be like this far as to say, like at least in the past, like 20 years, like 30 years to say like, I was actually at this thing that almost no one was at, you know, maybe some of the early ECW stuff, but like, I can't believe even it. Omega Daniel, even Omega Daniels, way more people had a chance to be there. I mean, yeah, twenty that twenty thousand people versus yeah. less than a thousand. Yeah, and to to say like I was one. I mean, people were crammed in there to say I'm one of the few. Bad back, rushing to get there. Like I got to see it. Like yeah. that's a really cool kind of like. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, form, form. to boast about getting to watch a wrestling match, but if there's ever yeah, one to yeah. boast about, being to say I'm one of the few that was actually there is really cool. I mean, only to other wrestling fans is this boast <laughs> relevant, but still, don't um, don't say that to a girl. <laughs> yeah, but, but they're they're women that are impressed by this. They're wrestling fans. Okay, though. Yeah. I, I meant like a girl you're dating that's not interested in wrestling because I just assume that anyone we date would not be interested in wrestling. Well, yeah, also, uh, also uh, that we, we don't date anybody, but, um, exactly. that's no, but Aaron, um, Aaron Taub, former guest on the show actually has on his Twitter bio as one of several things that he lists about himself, Joe versus Kobashi attendee. Um, so that's, that's it's Twitter bio worthy all these years later. <laughs> but, um, the other thing I was gonna say, like as special as this was, I don't think it's the best. It's not my favorite ROH match ever. It's the, my favorite experience. There were other really amazing live experiences that were just different that I'll get to that we'll, you know, we'll get to as we get to them. But as far yeah. as like matches, because I'm just, I was into like different characters and the storylines and stuff. There are other matches that resonated more with me as matches, you know, and they have more wrestling in them yeah. and stuff. But that's not to take anything away from this. Like it doesn't have to be the best match I've ever seen to say that it was so magical and special and just like, just something that I'll I'll never forget. Like it's one it's one of my favorite memories in life is being part of this. So like, and the, you know I'm glad I get to have it on DVD to watch over and over again. But so like, you know there will be other matches that come along. I mean there are probably some matches we've already seen <laughs> that I would say like probably as a match I think is better than this one. But like you can't. I mean nothing will ever be more special than this. Yeah. Um. I have some really interesting, uh, or not, I don't know, I'm not going to hype up my own thoughts, but I have some thoughts about this, but they're going to be kind of a, re- I think they work better as kind of a response to something Meltzer says, so maybe now we should transition to, uh, and obviously if you have things to, like, written things to read or anything, you know, feel free to interject, but I, I guess we'll transition to some of the reactions to this match. Now, first off, this was the best-selling DVD, we should mention, in Ring of Honor history. I believe that was never broken as a record. I, I think this was always their best-selling DVD. Um, next, we have just the live reaction. This was before Dave saw the match, but in The Observer, he wrote about the live reaction. In fact, this was, one, I believe, one of the rare Ring of Honor matches at this point that was uh, big enough that Dave broke it out from its own Ring of Honor section into, like, a, its own story on one of the first few pages. And in fact, not only did he do a whole, this thing I'm going to read some excerpts of, not the whole thing, this, write this article about the reaction to Joe versus Kobashi. He then just posted a bunch of quotes from people that were at the show, which I'm not going to read out, raving about the match because he got so many of them. And I will say one of them was from Green Lantern fan, but one was from someone else. And I thought it was funny. Some guy said something to the effect of, you know, if there was ever a match to give more than five stars to, it's this one. I saw, I that. Like, I oh. saw, I saw that. That is so funny. It's like you don't know the future, my friend. I mean, well, it's, none it's, of us. It's, it's still hilarious to me that Gabe, that Dave insists. I keep calling Dave 
Dave, Gabe. I don't know why, but it's still fu- <laughs> it's so funny to me that Dave insists that this was always true. Like, yeah, it was always you could go yeah. more than five. Like, sh- like shut up, man. Like I like Dave Meltzer, but shut up, man. <laughs> so the observer now to the guy who should shut up. We'll we'll let him speak. He'll he'll have a retort here. We received one response after another about Joe Kobashi from people who had been going to matches for twenty or thirty years, and virtually all of them said it was the greatest live match that they had ever seen. Unlike most major stars who came to ring and wanted to have a good match, for Kobashi, for whatever reason, this was as big a deal to him as it was to the fans. He studied tapes of Joe and had told people in the days before the match that he felt he needed to deliver a perfect match. While the match did not include the insane floor bump spot that is the lasting memory of many of Kobashi's recent matches of the year, he did everything else, including a two-minute chop fest that left Joe's chest brutalized. It was the stiffest match in the history of Ring of Honor, and when it was over, the consensus was it was the best. The crowd reaction helped a lot, as there were huge Kobashi chants throughout the match. The crowd already started chanting, this is awesome, the minute he threw the first chop and it was not without its casualties when kobashi took his mouthpiece off after the match half of a tooth was left inside he also thought he had suffered a busted eardrum since his ears were ringing from a blow from joe although it turned out that wasn't the case besides his chest being turned into hamburger meat joe also suffered an ankle injury of course that didn't stop either from doing it again the next night in philadelphia in a tag match Matches both nights were taped for both NTV, the broadcast network of Pro Wrestling Noah, as well as Samurai TV, the broad for broadcast later this month. The Kobashi versus Wade Chisholm match from September 24th in Eldon, Montana, aired on, or that might have been Missouri, on Samurai this past weekend. For Ring of Honor Booker Gabe Zapolsky, this was the highlight of his wrestling career, noting that when he started trading tapes in 1991, the big thing was the six-man tag matches from All Japan when Kobashi was getting his first push. Kobashi and Noah are believed to have gotten $9,000 from Ring of Honor for the appearances on the two shows, with the company, which the company was expecting would result in huge DVD sales of the shows, particularly the New York show, and costs were also offset by much of the New York crowd paying $20 for pictures and autographs with Kobashi after the show. Kobashi pinned Joe in 22-17, which is shorter than the cage match time. After the same short, Larry, he's used to win his biggest matches over the past few years. Normal logic would say that a company doesn't have its biggest star lose to a foreign star that is prob- possibly never coming back, and certainly not for another year. Sapolsky know that he was bringing Kobashi in to have the best matches possible, and if that meant throwing out storylines, that's what it meant. The feeling from almost everyone is that Kobashi, in selling so much for Joe both nights, only made him stronger. For all the talk of him being a monster and the best wrestler, he had never been in the ring with anybody of Kobashi's aura, and this loss likely made him a bigger star than his 60-minute match with CM Punk or any of his other matches in the three-plus-year history of the promotion. Virtually all the wrestlers who worked the undercard went to the balcony of the hotel and looked down, and they were going every bit as crazy as much as the rest of the fans. So that's the first big thing. A few things from that. First off, I will say... $9,000 $9,000 for the two matches. Dave Bixenspan in his article for Fanbyte says that when he talked to Kerry Silken, Silken remembered it as $10,000 plus travel expenses. I think either way, that was likely a good investment considering how much these DVDs probably sold. A steal of a deal, I would say, for Kenta Kobashi. Especially when they're selling $20 meet and greet, you know, autograph picture things afterwards. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, and I, I think, you know, that's why I said earlier, like, Dave was so afraid before this match of, oh, Joe can't lose to Kobashi. And although he doesn't really say I was wrong, I think that's about as close as you get to Dave admitting he was wrong, basically saying, yeah, like, yeah, the close you get to Dave ever admitting he was wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that, 
that, hey, like, it's pretty clear Joe did not lose anything working Kenta Kobashi and jobbing to him. Then we get the Observer for November 7th, and this is Dave's response to seeing the match, and we should mention that uh, they rushed. Uh, I believe the story is Ring of Honor rushed this footage to uh, Dave. I believe they got like a rough edit of this match and just sent it to Dave as soon as possible. Uh, I believe John Pollock and Wei Ting asked uh, Gabe in that inter- podcast interview, like, how important was it for Dave to get this match five stars? And you know, Gabe said it was really important that anytime Dave gave a five star review back then, it meant like a big bump in sales. So this is Dave's review of the match. He wrote, I just saw the Kenda Kobashi versus Samoa Joe footage with no commentary from October 1st from the New Yorker Hotel in Manhattan. The match is pretty much as it is billed. It's far from the best match I've ever seen in my life, but I'd give it five stars. And that makes only four matches in the U.S. in the last nine years I'd give that to. And what's scary, it's the third with Samoa Joe. Of course, the crowd made a difference. There were chants of this is awesome in the first two minutes before much of anything had happened, but the match was just ridiculously physical. It was not like this would have been a four-star match somewhere else, but the crowd made it seem better than it was. The crowd was always the crowd always ends up making some of the difference in a great match. It was kind of amazing to see a match where one of the guys did nothing but chops and a few carefully placed suplexes and almost nothing offensive on the mat as his entire offense in a match this good good which speaks volumes about getting a few trademark spots over huge and building matches around them joe versus punk in 2004 was more the right match in the right place at the right time the title was over punk was challenging in his hometown and they went an excellent 60 minutes with good build and a final 15 minutes that were blow away it would have been a good match under most circumstances but would it have come across as special somewhere else on another day not nearly in this one the things to me are the things to me were just how hard Kobashi worked and how much he was willing to take and do before less than 1,000 people and how he worked a match putting Joe, who was nowhere near his star, his level of star on international basis, over as an equal and a threat. Still, the keys to the match were the brutal chops and slaps both guys were willing to take. While not every crowd would have treated Kobashi like he was the god of wrestling that they were seeing live for the first time, I can't imagine see this match in any setting not working to almost the same degree. Everything was solid and believable. There was no slapstick or comedy to take the crowd out of the mood, nor stuff out of context that halted the momentum of the match. It was a unique mood because it was clear it didn't matter who won or lost, although anyone who knows politics of wrestling and Kobashi's spot in Japan knew the only possible results were a draw or Kobashi going over. Really, the latter was the only finish I could even envision. They they were there to see the first meeting, and uh, who knows, maybe the only meeting of their at their time dream match. And they did make it easier and harder. Everything in, uh, easier in that everything solid was going to get a great reaction. Harder in that everything le- anything less than a hundred percent effort from both men would mean the match wouldn't live up to expectations at the end. This match didn't come close. To didn't come close when it came to wild moves and athleticism to Joe versus Christopher Daniels versus AJ Styles, the other match I gave five stars to, or to a lesser extent, Kurt Angle versus Shawn Michaels or the first Daniels versus Styles Iron Man match, two other strong U.S. match of the year contenders. But from a Japanese standpoint of who is the guy who can take the most professional wrestling without resorting to permanently disfiguring someone, it was above those matches, because the chops for both sides were something to behold, and Joe's chest as the match went on was visible proof of it. The crowd exploded with Kobashi's first chop, blah, 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 um... 
Let me just say here, it's funny because after seeing it, I told Gabe Sapolsky that when he released the match on DVD, it should be without commentary. He said he'd already decided to do the same thing. I don't think matches without commentary work in most instances on a commercial DVD, but on rare occasions, and this match would be one, commentary would really only take the presentation down. When it was over, the most notable thing was not only that Kobashi worked Joe as an equal, even though Joe has never been what would be called a mainstream star in Japan, but also that Joe more than held up his end. There hasn't been a foreign wrestler in Noah who ever, who Kobashi has ever been able to work like this with. You'd have to go back to the Haiti of people like Stan Hansen, Steve Williams, and Vader in all Japan. The thing that struck me is just how messed up Japan is these days when it comes to evaluation and scouting of talent. What Joe has going against him are two things. He's not tall, probably six feet legit, as Abyss, a legit six foot four, towered over him when they did the spots in the TNA Rumble last week. He's heavy, and his body type is not a negative in Japan like it would be in WWE. In actuality, his body type in WWE would be a negative for the first five minutes he's in the company, and after that, the only people who would care are management and the wrestlers who are brainwashed into thinking you have to look a certain way to be a star. But the other negative is simply he has was never a mainstream star with an already established reputation. If you look at the superstar foreigners in Japan that really broke out, like Brody, Hansen, Funks, Mascaris, uh, William, Williams, Gordy, Hogan, Andre, Vader, and Norton, all but the latter two were established superstars in the U.S. first, and the latter two were the big powerhouse types that Japan has favored foreigners to be, and the company had decided to go all the way with them before they even had their first match. Vader actually grew into the role later. Norton made himself a nice career because he was pushed and got over with when, when the company was really hot and was established in fans' eyes as a monster. While he was a crummy worker, he was very believable at playing the big powerhouse role. Still, if a guy could go like this 15 years ago, he'd have gotten a Japan tour, and he may have to work his way up from the middle, but he'd do so and he'd have a, made a 15-year career as a regular there. The fact that Noah, New Japan, and All Japan aren't using him as their top foreigner after a match like this, no one in particular, since he's driven by matches exactly like this, really shows the problems with talent evaluation there. Love how so, da- love how Dave his tangents can allow him to get in a random shot at Scott Norton in the middle of his Samoa Joe versus Kikenta Kobashi review. Love it. Yeah, but a couple of points I took that from one. I do agree. It is amazing that like I never got, and maybe there's there's got to be more to it that Noah didn't just immediately after this match say like we want you all the time and as to be as our top foreign, you know foreigner period like i don't get why they didn't do that and the other thing this is the thing i want i said that dave would kind of touch off in me i agree with you like this is a five-star match one of the greatest matches in ring of honor history i there are other matches i have a softer spot for in my heart and it's kind of for the uh, difference than dave because if you so in that review it kind of sounded to me like dave is saying because i'm joe punk too was a match that was kind of a product of his environment. It wasn't as special. To me, that makes it more special. Like, Joe versus Kobashi is a match that you need no context for, that you can show to pretty much probably any wrestling fan and not tell them a thing about it, and there's nothing they need to know, and they're going to get it, and they're going to get maximum enjoyment out of it. And the Joe Punk matches are matches you need context for. You need to know kind of their hierarchy and the promotion. They have spots that play off other spots they did in their other matches, and even in other matches that didn't involve both of them, all this stuff. But to me, that makes it more special, because to me, Joe versus Kobashi is like you go out to a fancy restaurant and eat like 
Kobe beef or something you would never be able to order in your regular life or, or just something really fancy. And Joe versus Punk is like someone comes over to your house and they make like the best meal you ever had out of ingredients you had in your house the whole time. And you're like, I didn't know I could make this. Like, holy, holy crap. Now to Dave, it sounds like that's what makes Joe Kobashi more special is that like there no context is needed. This would be special to anybody. To me, it's matches like Joe Punk and maybe some of the matches you're thinking of when you talk about matches that kind of connected with you emotionally more that are most special because to me, it's harder to have a great match that's not a dream match where it's guys fans are seeing every month, you know, to make them feel like they just saw a five-star match when it's guys you see all the time. Like to me, that's even more special, but that's not to denig- this match is one of the most special matches in the history of the company. I agree with you about that. I would say also one day you got to do a food analogy that's vegetarian. Yeah, I always me. feel bad. I always feel bad. I was trying after I said Kobe beef. I said, well, is there some fancy vegetable you could normally get? But like, especially <laughs> because you live in New York, you can get anything you want. But um, except for love. Oh, but, uh, <laughs> no, I love I love Ring of Honor from 2000, the 2000s. Oh, <laughs> so my one true talked, love we have certainly never talked about the match as much i just have a couple quick little notes that i thought were interesting because matt i did so much research on this even though i could have done a lot more i went and scoured even gabe sapolsky reddit asked me anything from the last like 10 15 years and i got a couple comments related to it from gabe here one was um uh um someone asked like uh did they ever try another to get a different opponent for Kobashi or something? Gabe wrote, hmm, I'm sure they're aware, but nothing com- comes to mind. We did try and get Kobashi back, possibly to wrestle Brian Danielson, but it was never possible. Could you imagine that if, like, in 2006 they had come back with Kobashi versus Danielson? Like, uh, for know, some reason, I – oh, go on. No, uh, no, go ahead. I, I want to know what you were going to say. Oh, I think I'm going to say probably what you're saying, which is I don't think their styles would have matched up quite the same. Like, I think you need the heavyweight versus heavyweight. But still, that would have been a crazy thing to see. I, I'm going to say this. I Brian, never underestimate Brian Danielson. Like, I remember there were matches that Danielson had with certain people. They're like, oh, he's not going to mesh well with this person. And then they had some of the best matches I've ever seen. I remember thinking this with even just with Kenta, actually. And it's like, that sounds absurd now because they had so many great matches against each other. Even McGinnis, I remember thinking that with. And it's just like, Morishima, like, you know, I was like, oh, Morishima's probably better suited for guys like, you know, Nigel or Claudio. And it's like, no, Morishima's best matches were against fucking Brian Danielson. That guy would have had an amazing match with Kenta Kobashi, I believe. At least this version of Kenta Kobashi, you know, it depends on how much more broken down he would have been by the time he got yeah. there. But yeah, I, I never underestimate Brian Danielson. You know, it's sometimes I think about like what would it have been like to get that Joe versus Kobashi rematch, and I'm sure it would have been awesome, yeah. and I would have loved to see it. But at the same time, it's like it's kind of cool to have this as like this one special artifact too. Um, yeah, that, that's what I think. <laughs> And then another Gabe Reddit Ask Me Enemy thing. Someone asked Gabe, if you could book a never-been-done match using any active wrestlers from any company, who would it be? And Gabe's reply was, I did not expect this, I'll say. Gabe wrote, it wouldn't be a match, but a handshake. A handshake between Ric Flair and Kenta Kobashi. The dream will never die. And I just got to say, dream high. <laughs> like, yeah, well, I'm, gl- I'm, gl- I'm glad that would have been a big deal for Gabe. <laughs> I mean, I I would also say, I think that's probably pretty doable. Like, if you had enough money, I think Ric Flair would do pretty much anything. So, uh, (laughs) uh, this is still, Gabe, save some money. This is still an attainable dream. That's right. That's right. As of this recording, it is is attainable. Yes. I mean, 
we might be running out of time. Who knows? But listen, listen, I mean, listen, be positive. Okay. Okay. Um, so that is the match, Matt. Do you have any well, more thoughts? Yes, oh, I on. have. I have some notes from 2005 yes. from a, from a guy named Matt Feuerstein. Oh man! So it's actually amazing to read this back and be like, "Oh, you know what? I feel like I my opinion has not changed." Free watching this 16 years later, but okay. So this is verbatim what I posted on the torch board. I wrote, "I could go to a hundred wrestling shows, and never in my life will I have a more special experience than tonight." I'd bet money on that. I don't know if it was Match of the Year or Five Stars, because a lot will probably be lost in the translation to video, but being there live, it seemed like everyone took it as such. The atmosphere added a lot, though. And my lord, those two men beat the holy piss out of each other. In terms of taking punishment and stiff shots, Kobashi sure brought his A-game. The rest of the show had some really good stuff. Some weird stuff, but definitely nothing bad. Gibson Yang also provided an emotional moment, and the three-way was a very good spot fest. Overall, unless it was all in the atmosphere, this is a must-have show when it was released. And then I added a few other notes to uh, a friend of mine that I emailed. Um, I wrote, um, so this is actually not just about Joe vs. Kobashi, but I said, uh, some of the early matches, notably Colt, Claudio, and the tag title match, had some awkward spots that marred what were otherwise fun matches. Um, I said, uh, the last match Eve celebration for Gibson was awesome, very emotional. The crowd was very appreciative, and it was a very good match. Uh, I wrote, Jack Evans versus Homicide wasn't a technically great match, but it had a great atmosphere. Homicide is great live, especially in New York City, where he's treated like God. Evans has a ton of charisma, too, and it's cool seeing him do his flippy flops in person. Keep in mind, this was only the second time I ever saw Jack Evans live. Um And then I said, back to Joe and Kobashi, this was such an unbelievable atmosphere. There were some parts where self-loathing smart marks would be mad at the crowd, such as when they chanted, this is awesome, very early in the match, just due to stiffness and intensity. Luckily, their reaction was mostly people just going nuts and marking out as opposed to self-serving chants. It was so crazy seeing Joe do the ole ole kicks, and then realizing that he's doing it to Kenta Kobashi, and also realizing that Kenta Kobashi is just several feet away from me. The negative is that when I went, when they went outside and everyone stood up, I couldn't see. Luckily, it wasn't very long. Joe hit one kick on Kobashi, and then Kobashi either blocked or got out of the way of the second one or did, and did something to Joe. I'm not even sure what. That's all I missed. In my experience, Philly's crowd is worse than New York's. Now, keep in mind, I'd only been to one Philly show, and it was that homecoming <laughs> with a bad crowd. So I was That's really... New York. Yeah, I was talking about my ass there. I will say, after being in lots of Philadelphia shows since then, Philly's crowd is awesome. So, any Philadelphians here, I was wrong back in 2005. Um, But I said that and said, but I'm hoping the specialness of the show wakes them up a bit. I mention this because I hope Philly doesn't sour Kobashi's idea of the ROH US fans after tonight. (laughs) Because if this was his only impression, he'd think they were the greatest crowd ever. There were probably 800 people in that place, but it sounded like a packed arena for every exchange. On the way out, Carrie Silken, who always says goodbye as we walk out, was telling people it was the greatest match he's ever seen. Several people in front of me after the match were saying the same thing. Obviously, Silken's totally biased, but you can't get away with saying that unless the match is very well received. And this one was. And I said, I unfortunately can't go to tomorrow's show, but tonight was more than enough. Um, yeah, so other than the Philly stuff, which again, I was completely wrong about. I apologize. Don't hurt me. Um <laughs> 
I, you know, it's you know, when you listen to that, it doesn't sound too different than what I was saying on the show, does it? You know? And I, I think that's uh, that kind of sums it up as well as anything, which is like so often we see matches live and then we go, oh, we, we go home and we go, well, that wasn't quite as good when it wasn't live. And this is a match where you in your review seem to almost be anticipating that. And it's the rare match where it was just as good, it seems yeah. like. Yeah, now, now this match, at least at the time, did have its detractors. There were people that would say, like, you know, this was just a bunch of chops. It was, you know, it didn't do much wrestling, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think the years that have passed have uh, vindicated the people who said this match was amazing. Like, it really, I mean, this this really has, like, its legend has only grown yeah, in the past 16 years. It's not a match that was, yeah. like, you know, just great in the moment. It's great so many years later um i think you know it 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 just it just um um it goes so far beyond and and surpasses um the any idea of like you know the moves that were done you know what i mean like it's just yeah it's 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 just so much more special than that anyway i'm done talking about the match the but but you get what i'm saying no, absolutely. I'm glad. It was neat to get Matt from the past tag teaming with Matt from the present. You should write something that we can read in like another 10 years. Yes. Um, anyway, after the match, Kobashi helps Joe to his feet. They shake hands and embrace with Joe collapsing as they hug. He's really selling it here or maybe not even selling. Who knows? The dog ends up chanting Aragato as Kobashi bows to each side of the ring and he switches to chanting and they, and they switch to chanting match of the year as Kobashi leaves. We then get immediate slow-mo h- highlights of the match, which is a rarity, which um, they got the crowd chanting match of the year and just played that on loop throughout all the ha- highlights. I'm just like, that's a little, it's like, come on, Dave, you know, you know what you got to do match of the year, match of the year. But um, cut to uh, Joe sitting backstage Jay Lethal's pouring water on him. Joe says the fans demanded it, and Ring of Honor brought it to you. Joe says this is a pro wrestling company filled with the finest wrestlers in the world. No matter what the cost, no matter how many times his neck is going to click for the rest of his life, Joe knows one thing, that he gave it his all for the sport he loves. Joe toasts Kobashi and says he better believe he's coming for round two. Joe then slumps on his chair, kind of collapses again as Lethal calls for help. Next, we get a Kobashi post-match promo in Japanese as a text girl promotes Tomorrow Night Show. And that is Joe versus Kobashi. Uh, Matt, uh, what did you think about that show? I mean, obviously, the one match is, um, you know, what you know everybody should care about. But I don't think it's a one-match show in the sense of, like, um, like, I think the rest of the show was good. Like, I think it had, you know, had good entertaining stuff on it. And we've watched a lot, you know, we've watched the vast majority of 2005 ROH shows. And I'd say this is, you know, in terms of top to bottom, not, you know, not so far down the list of shows from the, through the year, you know, like it's, it doesn't yeah. have any other like must see matches or anything. But like, if you just want a, a show that moves, that's entertaining the whole way, that has some major stuff happen, that's fun, that has a great crowd, um, you know, even besides the legendary main event, this is a good show. And the main event puts it over to being a must-see show. So I think this is a, uh, you know, big thumbs up for me overall. And I'm not, again, not just the main event. Yeah, I completely agree with you. You said it as, about as well as I could. It, it's a show where even though there's nothing else that's must-see other than Joe versus Kobashi, this is a show that could have gotten away with less on the undercard. Even the matches that underachieved, in my opinion, like Yang and Gibson – they were still good enough to be enjoyable. Like there was nothing here that was not enjoyable. 
and there were some things that were better than I thought, like the three-way was pretty darn good. And the crowd really, it's just fun to watch that crowd all night. Like that crowd, it was just, it's, it's fun to watch it. So yeah, must watch show. If, if this is one of those shows, sometimes we say on the show, like I'll say, oh, this is a show. If, unless you're buying every DVD, you can, you can, this is one you can skip. This is the opposite. This is even if you only buy like a handful of Ring of Honor DVDs in your life, you just want to pick the absolute, like most important ones. You, you have to get Joe versus Kobashi. So, uh, yeah, that's that. And so plugs, you know, we plugged the podcast we appeared with up top, uh, through the years at gmail.com, T-H-R-O-H for through, at Trevor Dame on Twitter, at Mayor MGF is Matt on Twitter. We have a thread on the ProWrestlingOnly.com plugs forum. Uh, again, we, uh, Matt was on, um, maybe not Talway. I was on the Voices of Wrestling Patreon feed. We might be doing another podcast together soon, a guest appearance coming up. And that leaves us until next time. Our next show will be the second um, half of the Kobashi double shot. It will be unforgettable. A bunch of other major going ons on that show, including James Gibson's last Ring of Honor match, the introduction of a new um, commissioner in Ring of Honor, a big heel turn. And uh, Matt, I, this is funny. I actually forget a lot about how good that main event is. <laughs> For a show called Unforgettable. I do not remember much about that match, actually. Which it's, it's good. Blew. It's good. Yeah. So that was that. I hope you guys enjoyed the exhaustive detail we went. That's probably the most I've ever talked about one match. So until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.